podcast this week, we see hashtag may the first be with you to Kitty Green, writer, director of The Assistant and hashtag may the 4th of May be with you to the man who has inherited George Lucas's Mr. Star Wars mantle, the Clone Wars Supremo, Dave Filoni. All that plus usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that has to remind itself that some pods aren't meant to be caged. Their feathers are just too bright. Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to this week's Empire Podcast, which like the previous 817 installments comes to you from lockdown. Still, we're doing well, we're healthy, we're doing fine and we hope that you are too at home. And when I say we, I mean of course my three colleagues of such lethal cunning geek queen, Fireman Santiago, aka Helen O'Hara. Hello, how are you doing? I am fine. Cool. I am totally fine, Helen. How are you? I am, I'm beginning to get a little bit tired of lockdown, I'll be honest. And I would like it to end one day, but otherwise I'm good. It will never end, Helen. It will end, Chris. You and I will this walk is... again in green fields, brother. We shall. We shall. Uh, next up is professional lowbot impersonator, Machete Plays, a.k.a. James Dyer. Thank you, Chris. This is obviously uh, off the back of uh, Danny Trejo, who tweeted earlier today that he was getting lonely on his Animal Crossing island. And so asked if anyone wanted his dodo code so they can come and visit his island and play with his raccoons. That's not a euphemism. (laughs) I just love the idea of Machete sitting at home in his pants playing (laughs) Animal Crossing. It's just extraordinary. See, I don't know this Animal Crossing. I don't have a Nintendo Switch. I've never played it. What is it? It's a cutesy Nintendo game where you basically go to a little island with a family of raccoons uh, and uh, and set up a tent and then turn your tent into a house and build a little village and go fishing and catch butterflies and grow flowers and talk to the foxes and the badgers and the occasional sloth. Mm. But you have to yeah, like pay okay. back the loan that you yeah, got it's to actually build your true. Yeah, you're, it's very capitalist. Uh, uh, Tom, the head raccoon, loans you, I think it's nearly six grand worth of uh, miles that you have to pay back for your moving fee. And then when you do this that, he'll lend you, then he lends you like a hundred grand, like a mortgage to turn your tent into a house. So then you would have worked to pay back the loan on that. And I don't know what happens after that, because I haven't yet raked up the cash by weeding well, and catching back. Presumably he will then furlough the raccoons, right? That's what happens. Well, the two <laughs> raccoons are his sons, so that'd be quite harsh, but possibly. Possibly. There's also well, a dodo that works in the, um, in the, the airport who will occasionally send you on trips to other people's islands so you can visit them and steal their shit. Well, and or I, I know now that this game is bullshit because dodos are dead. They had their shot and they blew it. Oh, <laughs> harsh. Yeah, but there you go. Uh, last but not least in this week's show, uh, sitting in the rotating fourth chair is... Well, I'm a bit disappointed by his, uh, his squad cast name, if Look, I'm honest. You know, I had other things to worry AG. about. I had, Alex yeah. Godfrey. I had technical problems. I couldn't think of creativity. The AGOG. Oh, yeah. Yes, the OGAG. <laughs> Unless, of course, the AG stands for Alex Garland and you're doing some Alex Garland cosplay right now. Is that what you're doing? Does it look like it? If, if you are, would you do a dev spoiler special for us? That would be really good. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And also a 28 Days Later spoiler special as well. Ooh, and, uh, just, cool. gen- and a Dread just, And a Judge Dread. Dread, a dread, dread special. 100% yeah. Dread. Yeah. In fact, can we, get, can we just get rid of Alex immediately and get the other Alex on? And, uh, and we can spend the next four hours doing that. Yeah. Of course, no disrespect to this Alex, who is a fine Alex and one of the best Alexes I know. But I'm no Alex Garland. No. He's Dread. Sorry. You're dreadful. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's good, good to be here. <laughs> 
Uh, before we get into it, um, I am going to give a shout out to the best Alex I know, who is my niece, Alex, whose birthday is next Thursday, May 7th. So happy birthday, sweetheart. Hey. Hope you have a great day and you accept this dedication in lieu of a gift. Right. No mucking about this week with small talk and chicanery. We're launching straight into our brand new fact section, which this week is called simply, What Are You Doing, Jimbo? That's not the name of the show, by the way, but what are you doing? You just held your phone up to the screen for some reason. What are you doing? I was taking a picture of what I'm doing. I was, I was like grabbing you. I was taking a picture of, of this, this, this so-called podcast. Just, just do a screenshot. <laughs> Just it wasn't immediate. No, I was sending it to someone. It wasn't uh, immediate. Yeah. Anyway, the show, this segment is called Dr. Strange Fact or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Sections That Bomb. So the basic idea <laughs> of this is a brand new section for the lockdown and perhaps beyond. Uh, although oh, no. there's an incentive. There's an incentive to, to end a lockdown. Watching Helen's face fall every time I introduce this section is brilliant. Oh. Uh, so... The idea is that every week, my three colleagues of such lethal cunning bring me an incredible and arcane film fact that hopefully is true and also that I do not know and have not been exposed to previously. And I give a point to the winner each week. I choose a winner each week and give them a point. Currently, the scores are tied. Helen has two points. James has two points. And the person in the rotating fourth chair has one point, which heaps a lot of pressure onto Alex Garland's shoulders. Alex Garland, <laughs> director of oh. Ex Machina. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what is your fact this week? I mean, how long have you got? I'm going to tell you a story. This, so this God. is a fact. Yeah, this is a fact that I happened upon a couple of years ago and I was so intrigued by it. I investigated it and sort of found my story. And I've written about it and I'm going to tell you about it because it's pretty cool. <laughs> so um, this is about the Maury's wig ad in Goodfellas. You know this. You know this ad? This is Maury, yeah. uh, who runs a wig company in uh, in Goodfellas. And he does the late night cable TV ad, uh, which he stars in. Maury's wigs never come off, tested underwater, even in Hurricane Winds, all of that sort of thing. Um, it's funny. It's ridiculous. Very low rent cable TV type ad sort of thing that you would see on the outer rim of satellite TV in the 90s and probably still do. Um, so he was based on a real guy who really did have uh, an ad like that, which he did put together in Queens. It really did feature him swimming in a swimming pool wearing a wig, which didn't come off. Um, so this was the first thing that was shot for Goodfellas. Um, it was not shot by Martin Scorsese. This is this is genius, if you ask me. It was um, he was in pre-production. And he was flicking through late night cable TV um, and he saw this ad come on by a guy called Stephen Packer, who had a Windows company called Alco Windows. And he starred in his own ad and it was him basically shouting at the camera. It was very low rent. You can see it on YouTube. He sort of shouts about Windows and money. You see hundreds of banknotes falling out of a window and then the tape reverses and they go back in again. And Scorsese saw this and he said, basically, that is exactly what I want this Maurice Wiggs ad to look like. So he got his people to hunt down the guy and then he phoned the guy up. It was just a guy who owned a Windows company in New Jersey, I think. And he called him up and he said, I'm Martin Scorsese and I'm making a new film and I want you to shoot a wig ad for me in exactly the same style that you did your own ad in. Um, I'll give you my cinematographer, but he's just going to be there for you. Just do whatever you're doing. I'm not going to show up. Just do it. And the guy was over the moon 
and he storyboarded it and he went to Scorsese, he said, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to get a fishing wire attached to a wig and someone's going to pull it off the guy's head and we're going to go to a swimming pool and we're going to do it and it's going to be great. And he spent two or three weeks shooting it. He took it very seriously. It almost sort of overwhelmed him at one point. He phoned Scorsese up and said, I quit. I can't handle it. And he was coaxed to come back and he finished it. And then he showed it to Scorsese and Scorsese, who hadn't turned up at all, had nothing to do with it. I guess he didn't want to interfere with the sheer purity of the thing. Absolutely loved it. He didn't change a thing. He put it in the film and he invited the guy to the premiere. And that is the first thing that was shot for Goodfellas. And it had very little to do with Martin Scorsese. Awesome. That's my fact. That hack. God, I know. <laughs> is that a fact or a story? I'm not sure. Bit of both. It's both. Yeah. It's a fact. Well, that's one of the best facts of stories. So I win. All right. I think Alex has set the bar pretty high with that. Mm-hmm. Um, James, I'm going to come to you next. As the defending What's champion. your incredible fact? Well, I, I was in a bit of a pickle this week. So I think the problem is, is that my facts have been getting exponentially better each week. And as we will all know from the failed experiment that is capitalism, you cannot continue exponential growth without breaking the system. So I decided Surely that... Surely I should be the judge of whether your facts no, are becoming the bar, exponentially The bar better. of my facts was being raised so high, there was almost no bar. So I, uh, oh I felt, no, what I've got to do is I've got to reset the bar. I've got to reset the bar by bringing it right, 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 right back down to earth. Keep it really lo-fi, keep it really simple to reset the scale, if you will, uh, so that we can all be on a level playing field. So my fact is small, it is neat, it is, dare I say it, a bit shit, but I'm going to throw it out there because it tickled me and I quite liked it. Because it's one of these facts where we all know this fact, all of us know this fact, but we don't know we know this fact. It's a fact that's sort of, it's sort of creeping around in the back of our brain, in our lizard brain, and we haven't yet put the pieces together and realised it is a fact, but it is a fact that you we You don't have know. a fact, do you? This, this is preamble a whole lot of is so fucking long. Is it a riddle? God. You are Googling right now. You have just Googled film facts. <laughs> and I'm waiting for the base to load. Like, come on, quick, <laughs> If I fully bust her long enough, <laughs> I can probably look something We move up. now to the rule of cards. <laughs> yes, this is the Stackhouse filibuster. Um, no, my fact is this. Is this that in the Alien franchise, in the Alien films, all Ripley. the androids are named in alphabetical order? Oh come on! Ash, Bishop, Call, David, A, B, C, D. I just really like that fact. Uh, I appreciate it's not, you know, good. Then it jumps but- to W with Walter. Helen, I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> are, so are you saying they are introduced in alphabetical order? No, they're the name. The name. So the first one is obviously Ash in Alien. You got Bishop in Aliens. You got Call in Alien Resurrection, and then you got I David see. in Prometheus. So they are all named sequentially in alphabetical order. Although David, of course, is a prequel, right? So I mean, know. must you, Helen? <laughs> must so you sorry. rubbish my already rubbish fact? <laughs> I mean, I feel that's like it's like beating up a puppy or something. It seems harsh. I apologise. Yeah, I'll do the fingering. Oh, yes, um, indeed. <laughs> hmm. Walter. Yeah, why, why, why was he called, like, Edmund or something like that? Yeah, it seems they broke Edmund would have worked. It's because yeah. they knew that they would only make three more films in this franchise. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like this is not an intentional thing. I think it's like a, a random twist of the universe that this has happened. Uh, Surely but not. I, but I like it. That leaves room for 18 movies to fill in the gap between Prometheus and Alien Covenant, mm. if my maths are, are correct. It could happen. Yeah, that's that. It could happen. It shouldn't, but it could. <laughs> All right, Jimbo. That you, 
Look, you, you gave last you, week you, you, had, the white you had hurricanes, you had kidnappings, you had broken limbs. Uh, I but mean, enough about the podcast. Your fact hey. was also pretty good. <laughs> this week you get the alphabet. Fuck you. <laughs> but not, not even that. Like five letters. <laughs> there are 21 letters unaccounted for. Okay. Well, you know, All right. There you go. That's uh, well, technically speaking, that was a fact. All right. I'm not going to. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Alex is in front at the moment. <laughs> Helen, can you Hi. snatch victory from the jaws of defeat? No, because you know the bar that these guys have set. I'm about to limbo under it. <laughs> That's right. But I have you to say that this... repeatedly, and then dropped this incredible <laughs> fact. Well, let me tell you about how Mae West took her tea. <laughs> Honestly, she was amazing. I could just fill the podcast with facts about her. But um, th- this was actually sent to me by a reader. So I'm kind of cheating. Um, Commander Taco, CMDR Taco, uh, sent me this. He visited Weta in New Zealand, Weta Digital specifically, right? And obviously Weta Digital, like any big CGI producer, any any company that's working on visual effects, has massive amounts of computational power needed to render all of these images, right? It takes an enormous amount of energy. And you have an enormous amount of heat produced as a result of all these computers going crazy. Um, So you need to dissipate that heat somehow. So there are giant companies that will basically sell you extremely expensive, very, very advanced systems to get rid of all this heat that's coming off all of your massive render farms. But wet is in New Zealand, and New Zealand is full of farmers, specifically dairy farmers. And the dairy farmers looked at this problem of heat dissipation and they realize it's basically the same thing that you have to figure out when you're moving milk from cows, which are warm, to plants for bottling where you want to keep it cool. So they basically apparently save tens of thousands of dollars by cooling their render farm with essentially a milk system. I just enjoyed that fact. What? 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 That was a very milky fact. Well, it was so a very I, you know technical fact, but I was so amused. What do they do with the milk? There's no milk involved around the servers, but they just use the same system that the dairy farms use to get rid of all the heat. What do they do for vegan computers? That's a very good question, James. I'll go back and ask. Blue milk. Blue milk. (laughs) Since my fact was rubbish and since Helen has cheated and used a reader-generated fact, can I put in a supplementary fact that was also submitted by a reader, which I had actually forgotten about and I had planned to use on this show, but had forgotten about it. So can I can I, I do a take two? I'm, I'm, it, all the it. rules are going out the window to it this week. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second here. Wait a second yeah. here. What the hell's going on here? <laughs> Look, we all agree Both? Alex won, okay? Yes. We all agree okay. Alex, Alex won. won. So now we're just having a conversation. It's all about second yet. place at this point. We're just, we're just four friends having a friendly chat. <laughs> it's everything what? to play for. James the does not hell? agree that Alex won, clearly, because he do. wants to sabotage. Oh, no, I 100% believe you won. Um, but Why are you being helped? This isn't quiz show. You, you're not... This is a lifeline. I've found a friend, <laughs> and that friend is Kev Rosam-Smith on Twitter. <laughs> and Kev says this for you. A fact. A fact for you, says Kev, for this week's Empire. The RAF used to use Top Gun when training engineers to maintain ejection seats, mainly because of the mistakes. In the first fight with the MiGs, you can clearly see the brass hand wheels on the right side of the seats. These hand wheels are used during maintenance to withdraw the main lock that holds the seat in the aircraft, and if it had been fitted in flight, Maverick and Goose would have fallen straight out as soon as they went (laughs) inverted. How do I know this? I am one of those engineers. Amazing. 
I thought he was going to say, I am Goose. Yes, I am Goose. <laughs> and I've been on and the I lamb. Did, <laughs> yeah, I, a goose on the lamb? <laughs> That's just not right. This is this is a bold new era for uh, for Fact Me in the Face. And I think this should be one of these things where our readers should dig out the best facts they can. And then they should pick myself or Helen to be the avatar of their fact. <laughs> and we right. will take That's their right. fact <laughs> yep. to the podcast <laughs> yep. and see if we can win on their behalf. I think That's that should idea. happen. Because then we don't have to come up with and any then We don't have to do the work. The listeners do have to. Yeah. And it could be Team Helen and Team James and we shall, we shall advocate their fact. No, 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 no. I feel very strongly that you two should have to put in the, uh, the legwork here. I th- see, what I thought this would do, what I thought this, this section would do is that it would inspire us all and not just you, the people who have to participate but it inspires all to like read more film books and Dude. and immerse ourselves and Helen I've I know you're doing, doing that I've been doing nothing but reading film books for the past year and one day we'll be able to tell people <sighs> why but um, but it's it's very exciting but nevertheless you know James I mean, I've got to be honest know, Chris could... what I'm reading is the Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson so if you wish to know about surge bindings then I can tell you loads about that oh it's super good yeah. that doesn't help you Chris you look like a teacher who's been let down by your students <laughs> I've been, I've been deeply let down. And you know who didn't let me down this week, Alex? You. You didn't oh, let me down. Have I ever? You came prepared with a fact that admittedly you've known for some time. So, you so know, what? Wasn't What's like the rules? Fact. It's fine. It's totally fine. There, there, there are no rules apart from the rules that I make up arbitrarily every week. <laughs> but that said, uh, I'm going to throw in one little fact. I'm not asking for a point this week, although I'd award it to myself. But Everyone's trying to take this away from me. No, no one subject, is. I can't take it. I'm not in the game. Alex, I'm not in the game. Okay. It's like a referee scoring a goal. Can't can happen. Can't happen. Uh, <laughs> so whilst we're on the subject of uh, Weta, New Zealand and planes, uh, on Neil Finn's recent-ish album, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's just called Neil Finn. He uh, has a song on there called Dive Bomber. And on this song, there is a soundtrack of World War One fighter planes. And at least one of those fighter planes belongs to Peter Jackson, and he who has a huge collection of World War One memorabilia, including planes. And he uh, he let his old mucker, Neil Finn, use them. But I mean, that makes sense because everybody in New Zealand knows everybody in New Zealand. So of course he did. Like if you were going to get a World War One plane in New Zealand, obviously you just ring up your old mate, Pete. I don't, yeah. I don't also, get how that's Peter Jackson to be a own most of New Zealand. So yeah, and I most of World he, War One. Yeah. His is a crowded house in which the, uh, the, the band <laughs> used to live, is my understanding. But anyway, okay, so enough enough tension because I'm sure the nation is on tenterhooks about who has won this week's What's it called? I've written it down. Doctor Strange fact. <laughs> or, or how I learned to stop worrying in low sections of bomb. You name next week. The winner of this week's is Alex. Yeah. Well done, Alex. Appreciate it. What a surprise. Well deserved. And I've got to say, James, James, your reader fact. What was it? Kev? Yes, Kev's fact. The Kev, the fact was okay. What's impressive is <laughs> yeah. your proximity to yes, the fact. Exactly. He is, in fact, an engineer. Uh, I think that's I think that's I think that's a good mm. fact. I also Dolphins. love the idea, and I don't know if this is apocryphal, but this was a fact I rejected for an earlier one, which is that uh, when new managers used to start on NASA, they used to show them Armageddon, and they used to have to spot the errors <laughs> in Armageddon <laughs> yeah. uh, and list them all. They ha- I can't remember exactly how many. They said there were a hundred and something specific errors, only a hundred something, and wow. they had to find all of them in this film. <laughs> that's when you say funny. they had to show them Armageddon, they they showed them the Michael Bay film, yeah. and they didn't just do like it wasn't in Starship. <laughs> Card. They just did a mind meld and showed them the future. Yeah, it, wasn't, it was the admonition. 
<laughs> to hear myself, Helen and James discuss that, plus a Sir Patrick Stewart interview. Listen to the Star Trek Picard season one spoiler special, which is up now, he said confidently. <laughs> <laughs> Having not yet edited it. <laughs> nearly done, nearly done. He lied. Anyway, uh, that's enough of the, uh, the fact section, and let's roll effortlessly into this week's listener question. And yes, I said question, because... Um, I realized that by adding some listener questions to a show which has already had two extra sections added to it, plus all the usual stuff, that the podcast have been running long recently. So I'm going to draw it back this week. We have just one question, but here's the thing. This question alone could inspire four and a half hours of debate. So here we go. It is a Marvel question, so if you're one of those people who doesn't like it when we discuss the MCU in this podcast... Skip the next 45 minutes. Uh, the question comes from <laughs> at Tully underscore Oz. How would the team rank the MCU's post-credit stings? And then he says, I was pretty excited when we saw Thor's hammer. Steady on. Golly. Blimey. Now, this is a big one. Now, mm. let's put this in a little bit of context for the people at home. Uh, if you have been living on... Formir for the last <laughs> 10 years or so, you may be unaware that most Marvel Cinematic Universe movies have a post credit sting. Didn't start the trend, but they've certainly popularized it. Uh, and some of those are just simply clips from the next movie. Some of those are supplemental material, if you will, to set up the next movie or movies beyond that. Uh, often they're directed by the next director. So it's almost like a passing of the torch, a, a passing of the baton, if you if you will. And there are fucking loads of them. <laughs> there are loads. There's at least 30, I think, by my count. Um, so... Most uh, of them in Guardians of Galaxy Volume 2. <laughs> yes, Guardians of Galaxy, which has five, right? Five? Mm -hmm. Does it really it has have five? five. It does. Yeah, uh, I think they were. You know, James Gunn was uh, was gilding the lily there. Let's talk about this, Alex. Do you have any favourites particularly? I love the one which I think is at the end of Thor Ragnarok because it's basically the first scene of Infinity War, right? And it is there is something so ominous and quietly terrifying about it, and obviously it's a taste of things to come, and it's in such contrast with the rest of that film which is basically a comedy that it sort of just gives you the shivers and then when you see infinity war i mean you you know put two and two together it's like this incredible jigsaw puzzle so i like that one so that's the one at the end of ragnarok where thor and loki are chatting having reconciled and they're like nothing could possibly go wrong and then thanos shows up in his ship that dwarfs mm. Well, mm -hmm. Asgard. But, that, that yeah, and then seconds later, everybody's dead. There are two <laughs> tiers of these, aren't there? There, mm -hmm. there are the silly ones, and there are the you have to watch these things or the whole saga doesn't make sense ones. And like, so some of them are actually essential. That being one of them, I would argue. Um, Most of them are like that, I think. No, no, because no, they well, normally yeah. have an important one, and then they have a, a trivial one, don't they? I think, I think of, there's a. There's a bit of a split. I think early on they were all trying to set up the next film. Whether they were actually essential or not is another matter, but they were at least trying to tease what was coming next. Um, and then they started introducing the sort of funny throwaway ones as mm. well, um, which are my favourites to go back to. Because now you see Thor's hammer and you're like, I mean, cool, that's Thor's hammer. I've seen that before. Um, whereas if you go back <laughs> and you see, you know, the Captain America patience bit is my all-time favourite, I think, because it's just hilarious and it has no real need to be there. That's the one on Homecoming, one of his PSAs yes, yes. to the uh, to oh, the school. Amazing. And it's, 
it's brilliant. It's yeah. sometimes you wait for ages and it was totally not worth waiting <laughs> for. You know, it's amazing. I think the best two are both on the same film. <gasps> Spider-Man Far From Home. Absolutely right. Spider-Man Far From Home. Uh, because the first one that J.K. Simmons is, uh, as J. Jonah Jameson is incredible and a massive like what the fuck moment and then they follow that up with another even bigger what the fuck moment where yeah. talos and soren are there and you realize that it's not been fury and hill at all and it's just i think those are both game changer ones and they're both really fun and funny too mm. so yes those are definitely the best two end of list yeah well <laughs> yeah. i i, I well, have a, a few others a yeah i tried to make a top a- 10 Oh, did you? Yeah, I didn't quite get it, but I've, I've got somewhere around there. I think Black Panther and Wakanda coming out, I think, is really clever. Mm, that's great. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, some of these, you know, with the Spider-Man one as well, we are still waiting for the payoff on these. So we still kind of don't know, you know, the, these those three specifically, we're still waiting to see what happens next. So they're still kind of exciting that way, which might be put them at an advantage compared to phase one and phase two. Um, it's interesting, those those two moments that you mentioned, uh, that Black Panther moment and mm. the Far From Home moment. And by the way, spoilers for all these movies. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I, I have to assume that if you're listening to this that you have seen all 23 MCU films. Uh, if you haven't, you're shit out of luck because we're discussing the literal ends of these movies or the beginnings of the next month. Um, so the Black Panther moment and the Far From Home moment both were originally the end of the movie. Mm. Um, and... Uh, they, they decided to play around with him a little bit, as likewise the uh, the Thor: The Dark World sting, mm-hmm. where Thor returns to Earth and plants a big old smoocheroonie on Jane Foster, mm-hmm. who also interestingly in that clip is not played by Natalie Portman. What? It is Chris Hemsworth's wife, Elsa Pataki, oh. shot from behind in a Portman wig. Isn't that nice? For the old smook smackaroo. Uh, so that was originally the end of the movie, and then they you know they reshot it and did the old Loki thing. Anyway, Helen, That's- yes, go. That's not my favourite one in that movie, actually, because coming up uh, number three in my top ten is the giant cat monster in Thor The Dark World, which is just <laughs> chasing pigeons yeah. somewhere around East London. I just I enjoy that. I really like Nick dusting. Uh, Nick and Maria Hill both getting dusted um, oh, right. at the end was, of Infinity War. Uh, not actually. some housework. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. that, that's the, um, the pager sequence, isn't it? The Captain Marvel yeah. sequence. The pager was exciting. Yeah, it was. That was a proper, ooh, yeah, um, I enjoyed the uh, flurkin throwing up the uh, <laughs> the tesseract. Just made me laugh. Also, the Ant Man and the Wasp dusting mm. is also a very important one. So I thought that was really good. And then uh, Groot, uh, teenage Groot in his room being rude. <laughs> just amused me. Um, and uh, finally, Jeff Goldblum surviving the coup and. Hailing the revolutionaries for doing a really good job and deciding to call it a tie, I thought was wonderful. <laughs> the Incredible Hulk is one of the few MCU movies that doesn't have a post-credit sting. The uh, Thunderbolt Ross and Tony Stark uh, conversation is the end of the movie. That's how the movie ends, uh, because it was the second MCU movie that clearly weren't as confident in themselves it would be at the end of the credits now, absolutely. But And it's where it's meant to be. It's clearly meant to belong there. Mm. But they clearly didn't trust enough that audiences would stick around. 
And over the years, we've seen this phenomenon develop, haven't we? Now we're at the end of a Marvel movie. If anyone gets up, you just pour scorn on them. You just go, what are you, <laughs> you doing? I think You're with the invested. I think with that one, the audiences didn't even stay till about halfway through, unfortunately. Oh, that's fair. Sorry. Well, the filmmakers had long since given up, so why should the audience stick around? (laughs) That was a joke. That was a joke. I respect the Incredible Hulk's right to exist. Um, No, it's the the worst MCU film. It's the worst MCU film. It is. But it's still okay in in places. Um, But it doesn't technically have a post-credit sting. Neither does Endgame. Yes. For obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And neither, technically speaking, does Captain America the First Avenger. Now, it does, but it is so nakedly an advert for the Avengers (laughs) that it's not really. It's a clip from, it's basically a scene from the Avengers, then with an advert for the Avengers bolted onto it. So it doesn't really technically have one, I would say. But I'm Mm. willing to have an argument with anyone who thinks it does. No, I'll allow it. Most of them are adverts for the Avengers in some form or another. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> it's true. It's not, it's not movie making, Alex. It's just adverts. It's just it's just toys. <laughs> Isn't just selling toys? Isn't yeah. the Ant Man second sting though? That's just footage from uh, Civil, Civil War, War, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. So that's, yeah. that's technically yeah. not a proper sting. Although it's it's slightly different footage. It's yeah. a slightly different it's, version of the yeah. scene. They've edited some stuff there. Oh, we forgot also um, the second Ant Man and the Wasp. Uh, sting with the ant playing drums. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's essential that was... plot one that you must see <laughs> to understand the whole saga. Yeah. I mean, Which, without of course, that, what's we saw. That's the. Is that the first post-credit sting that has actually been in, in the teaser in the trailer? Because we saw we saw yeah, the ant playing right. drums in one of the trailers, um, and then of course I don't think they knew where to stick it, so they stuck it at the end. But it's obviously after post snap, so it has a little bit little bit of sadness to it. No one's going to feed that ant. Uh, no. Presumably the ant dies between the end of Ant Man no. and the Wasp and Endgame. No, Cassie would go and get the ant. Cassie loves that ant. I think we've had this discussion before about the uh, about the the life cycle of an what ant. What is the ant I don't called? think they'd live five years. Anthony's dead. So it's just like Antonio. Like who? What's this one's name? Something something like that. Something like that. I I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I, I, speaking of Ant Man stings, I really like the one at the end of the first Ant Man where you know it's the about Dan time sting where <sighs> Michael Douglas Wasp. shows shows hope. The, uh, the wasp outfit yeah. and she she utters the words about a damn time which I've used in about a dozen articles about the MCU since when talking about <laughs> them introducing a female hero or a black hero or you know about damn time so uh, it's it's uh, that's a good moment uh, and I also really like I mean, we haven't mentioned the first one have we we haven't really mentioned the one that started it all Nick which Fury. is yeah. Um, yeah. Nick Fury that was end, great at the end of the first Iron Man yeah that was great because he comes into Tony Stark's house disables Jarvis um, and to have his conversation. And, and it was the first time that people went completely mad in a cinema for, a, for the, the promise of a next movie or an upcoming yeah. movie. Oh, well, that was basically Marvel saying, we're going to do an Avengers film. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> and then they did 12 Avengers films. <laughs> <laughs> um, really? I've only seen four, but I've seen, I've seen those four. 150,000 times, so it feels like 12 movies. I would like to give a shout-out for the original Guardians uh, Dancing Groot one, uh, Mm -hmm. which I love. I don't like the Howard the Duck one so much, but I like, I very much like the Dancing Groot and Drax one. I like the fact that you have a callback to that at the beginning of Guardians 2 when they have the battery sequence. But please notice, unusually Mm. for me, I have not mentioned the Thanos sequence in Age of Ultron. (laughs) 
even though he is, as we all know, the unsung hero and the true star of the Infinity Saga, because he looks shit. Um, because it's before they kind of properly nailed his look, and he's just a bit rubbish. And I remember the yeah. first time you see Thanos on the throne in that sequence, I remember <laughs> someone turning to someone else in front of me, the Mosmir, and going, "It's that Hellboy," <laughs> and I was like, "No, no." No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. you, you mean the, um, the, yeah. the scene at the end of the first yeah, Avengers? Yeah, yeah, that one. There was just yeah. one guy at the back of that press screening who suddenly shouted, Thanos! That was me. Like all of his dreams had come true. <laughs> Again, me. It was James. Team Thanos! Finally, six films of bad guys. Now we get the real hero. Thank right. God. Uh, I'm going to mention a couple more because why not? <laughs> why the hell not? Uh, so I'm going to mention a couple of last last appearances so the bit in Thor the Dark World where Fat Ray Stevenson and uh, Lady mm-hmm. Sif bring the ether to the collector is the last time we see the Lady Sif in the MCU uh, unless you count Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. yeah which no one don't. counts Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. okay yeah fair <laughs> <laughs> um, another one that I just popped into my head I really really love the Iron Man 3 one with Banner and uh, and Tony, the sort of therapy yeah, session where he's not been listening. One. I think that's a lovely I'm not that one. kind of doctor. No, <laughs> it's brilliant. And <laughs> Don't I really have the right like, temperament. Uh, I like the <laughs> Doctor Strange and Thor one. Uh, at the end of Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange and Thor moment, which I know we get to see properly, but I thought that was loads of fun as well. Yeah. yeah. The last one I'm going to mention is uh, the sting at the end of Captain Marvel, where it's the bridge between Infinity War and Endgame, mm. where Carol Danvers shows up at Avengers HQ just after the snap, or a couple of weeks after the snap. And Helen, it's the last time we get to I see know. Steve's beard. I know. It was really upsetting. R.I.P. It served so well. So well. <laughs> uh, so, Helen's favourite is the Patience one. That is my number two. I, I'm going to go for a JJJ reveal in, in Far From Home as well. Alex, you've gone for... Remind me well, again. you know what? I, I had gone for the Ragnarok one, Thanos's ship, but I'd forgotten, because I hadn't got that far in my research, I'd forgotten <laughs> about Far From Home, and that's obviously the best one. And that's my one. Helen's shaking her head. Jimbo. You know why I stand. It's Far From Home all the way. Helen, why why the head shake? I, I just only because I disagree. Um, I think that's great. That's my number two, though. So yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah. Okay. See, the, the patience one's my number two. So by process of elimination, a bit of mathematics, mathematics, bit of mathematics. The winner is far from home, uh, but followed briefly, closely, followed closely by Homecoming. So well done, everybody. Well done. Round of applause for the Spider-Man. Universe. <laughs> but especially Spider-Man. Uh, John Watts just seems to get those stings, doesn't he? Okay, so if you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast or questions, we'll probably go back to multiple questions next week. Uh, you can get in touch with us via a number of methods. Best way is Twitter, obviously. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. We're at Empire Magazine on there. Or as more and more people are doing, they're sliding into my DMs at Chris Hewitt, or they're just tweeting me at Chris Hewitt on Twitter as well. Where else? We're on Facebook. Eh. And we're also on email podcast at empireonline.com. Okay, time now for a guest. Monday is the 4th of May, as in May the 4th of May be with you, the most famous line from Star Wars. And what better way to celebrate that momentous day than with the final season and the final episode of the final season of The Clone Wars, the animated Star Wars show which has returned for its seventh and final season exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Dave Filoni has been the creative force behind that show and Star Wars Rebels and Star Wars Resistance 
and along with John Favreau, The Mandalorian, for over a decade now. And I caught up with him last week to have a good old natter about, well, all things Star Wars and Clone Wars and how he feels now the whole shebang is pretty much close to finished. Little technical snafu and uh, the interview was put together very late in the day so we weren't able to do it on Squadcast. so um basically we we did it i recorded one half of his conversation through i recorded his half of the conversation through my computer and my half of the conversation on my iphone so there may be some issues hopefully it'll all line up hunky-dory and you won't even know that anything went wrong but just in case it doesn't sound great that's what happened. Anyway, here I am having a chat with Dave Filoni. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast as we get so close to Star Wars Day by the, well, the Clone Wars, the Rebels, the Mandalorian guru, Mr. Star Wars, I'm saying. Dave Filoni, how are you, sir? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> It was actually bigger than I expected. Yeah, it was good. You sold yourself. You said just say people's names. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, precisely. Uh, I I called you Mr. Star Wars. How do you feel about that? I I don't know. Um, You know, I'm glad just to be part of Star Wars. And, uh, you know, I've been here a while. Uh, It's something really special, Star Wars. And there's so many fans. I grew up a fan. And uh, I'm just glad, you know, if if you feel that way in any, any degree... I like to think it means the team and I are, are, have been doing a good job and, uh, you know, but uh, I appreciate it, but it takes a lot of people to do what we do. So, <laughs> Well, obviously we're here to talk about the Clone Wars, right. uh, which is, which is coming to an end. And yeah. I have to say in brackets again, yeah. so, <laughs> you know. so is, is this finally the end, Dave? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's the end as far as I think the characters go that I feel are the main thrust of the series. And, you know, that time period's there. It existed long before I ever got involved. It's something I first heard as a kid when Obi-Wan talks about it to Luke. And I imagine in the, mm. the great scope of things in Star Wars that, you know, hopefully down the line there will be stories told in that time period. There have been other stories told since we ended the animated series in that time period. So, mm. you know, I think it's interesting that we got to do so many and that George was along with us for so much of it. But for me, for the animated series uh, called Clone Wars, it definitely, it is the end. And it feels good to give that, it's, you know, a kind of complete shape and uh, hopefully an arc and make all those episodes add up to something poignant, I hope. When did you first know that it was coming back? Because you, you, I presume you thought that that was it when it when it ended a couple of years ago. Oh a yeah, years ago more. Well, for years I did. <laughs> I didn't have, you know, I yeah. think, and I it was such a very important time period for myself and the crew, and you know what we learned and working with George, and you know we understood that we were going into a completely different time period. I mean, I, I forget the fact that you know the the Lucasfilm was bought by Disney, that's one aspect of it. But the fact that there were going to be all these new movies, you know, that was not something that existed while we were making Clone Wars. You know, Clone Wars existed kind of in this aftermath of Revenge of the Sith. It's kind of funny if you think about it, because no, we should be before it, but we were after it. And I think a lot of people were saying Star Wars was, was done back then when Revenge of the Sith came out. Well, that's it. The cycle is over, blah, blah, blah. And, but, you know, Star Wars fans always had a saying that, uh, you know, Star Wars is forever. You see the things and they, they say the conventions and, and they're right. I mean, because people love it and they want it to continue. And 
you know, I, uh, but I really thought that it was over <laughs> when we were done. And you know, I was excited to go on and make Star Wars Rebels and kind of put all the things we had learned into a new shape, into a new series of new characters and being new people. And one of the people that, that I was working with all the time that you know, helped me create Star Wars Rebels was uh, Carrie Beck, who came in with uh, Kathleen Kennedy. And, you know, Carrie was very supportive of everything we were doing in animation. I think she really enjoyed the storytelling and, you know, we all got along great. And, you know, every now and then she would say, you know, would you ever do more Clone Wars? I'm like, yes, I guess, but I, you know, I don't know if we can do it. You know, a lot of those people are gone now that work with me on the show and we have a different system of doing things now. So many things have changed. It's been so many years. It's, I, I can't stress enough. It's not like you're just turning a machine back on. And, uh, yeah. you know, so I thought about it, but I was also, you know, we go to Star Wars Celebration and would show crude clips that we had of stuff we shot. I would talk about possible plots and arcs and things that we were going to do maybe as a way of saying, hey, you guys deserve this because I don't, I don't think it's ever going to happen. So let me talk about it. And we built <laughs> panels and things. And, you know, then really the thing that, that brought it around was, you know, having Disney Plus. And, you know, when you have a, a, a streaming platform, you need content. And uh, one of the yeah. things, you know, Clone Wars immediately had over 100 episodes with it. And so really, yeah. Terry uh, saw the opportunity to say all of those episodes will mean so much more if there's an ending. You know, and to her, like, if you can do your proper ending, would you do that? And I was like, yeah, sure, I would do that. <laughs> but I need it to be like, if we bring it back, it has to be better than it was. It has to have the same scale, the same scope. And, you know, Clone Wars is a massive show with gigantic battles and the, the renders different than Rebels. It's very different than Resistance. And, you know, I, the leads that I have, sorry if it's a long answer, but the leads that I have that stuck with me over the years from the art department, design department, uh, visual effects, all those guys, uh, we got together with Athena, my producer from Columbus, and we, what can we do this? What would it be like? Yeah. Just to see, you know, and, and they all were pretty confident with, you know, the way technology has evolved and changed of the years. It's, we could probably make it go. And then I guess, too, that Disney Plus really supported us and said that's a great idea when Terry went and pitched it. And, uh, you know, so really between the two of them, they, they thought this would be a great thing. And then suddenly I actually had to do it. So when I'm being something that was not ever going to happen to, oh, wait, really? You, oh, we're going to yeah. do it. Okay. Wow. Um, that's unexpected. And, and did you have enough story? At least a whole other series of questions about, like, you know, when you bring something yeah. back like this, it's animated, what should it look like? You know, yeah. because we had a style, but even if you watch the old episodes, they evolve. It evolved. And now it was yeah. like several years later, and we thought, right, well, let's just make it as good as we possibly can. Let's change the rigs, change some of the character models, but, you know, keep the essence of it, and uh, you're seeing the results. Did you have enough story? Because obviously you had, you've, you've talked in the past about mm -hmm. that there have been... Uh, yeah, as you say, you were at celebration. You were going. Oh, we were going to do this. We were going to do that. Uh, so, it's it, it, almost be careful what you wish for. Suddenly, oh, here comes the here comes the show again. You have one season, but you've blown all your story at celebration day. For <laughs> or was it easy yeah, to come well, up with the final arcs? Do you have enough story? It's like 
you know, I think it's really rare for an audience to have insight into the creative process. And like, for example, the Bad Batch arc, we had released them on Stallers.com years ago in their rough animatic form, Indian story reel form. Mm. And what people probably don't realize about a story reel is the goal of a story reel is not to say like, well, here's the finished picture. We're just going to render that animated in their cut. The goal there is that this is a template. And let's challenge it. Yeah. Let's look at the dialogue. Let's look at the pacing. Let's look at the cuts. Let's chop it up. Let's change things. <clears throat> so it had kind of stopped in, in part of the process of, of that execution. So there was, right, there was plenty of story. And I think the, the real trick was finding, you know, meaningful episodes that could build towards this ending. And I knew that we were going to do 12. Mm-hmm. So that's to be it's three arcs. And so it was really just what, what are the important things? And for me, it's like Rex and Ahsoka are the key to the whole thing, really, if you're talking about primary mm-hmm. characters of the Clone Wars. And so there had to be an arc about Rex and the clones and the military. There had to be an arc about, to me, a big, well, I could say a missing piece, but we started to touch upon it in Ahsoka's previous arc with uh, Barriss Ossie when she left the Jedi Order, which mm. is there are people that are dissatisfied with what's going on in the Republic. There are citizens that are upset and unruly, and they are losing faith in their government. They are losing faith in the Jedi Knights. They think the Jedi started the war. And I wanted to further uh, those ideas uh, and, and kind of give Ahsoka a perspective that she probably didn't have before growing up in the temple behind these walls. Now, you know, they say they're helping and protecting all these people, but after a millennia, is that really still true? You know, or are they, you know, unknowingly complicit in this downfall? Uh, They're trying to do the right thing, but they're failing at it, which is, again, sad because it's exactly what Anakin does. Anakin's trying to do the right thing. He doesn't think he's a bad guy. He wants to protect his wife, but his attachment to Padme puts that ahead of everything else in his life in the galaxy. And he doesn't realize he's become selfish and he's trying to protect her at all costs, which is going to cost everybody else a whole lot. And so it's echoing themes. You find ways to echo the themes that George had in the films without interfering with them and without accidentally redirecting them. You know, honestly, in my own effort as a storyteller, I could Anakin the whole thing and, and mean well, but regressed it in a way I didn't intend. So, you know, there was, there was enough story. It's one thing I've learned about Star Wars. There's, there's plenty of story to go around. You know, I've been here 15 years and never stopped telling stories. So it, there's always a yes. twist or, or something you can put on it uh, to make it unique. And, and over the years, I mean, you, you mentioned Ahsoka there. And uh, is she the, the creation that, of which you're most proud because of the way that she straddles this show, because of the way she straddles Rebels as well, that the impact she's had on pop culture. I am very proud of that character. Uh, I don't think I comprehend the impact. I don't think I fully understand it because I've been writing her for you know so long now, and it's such a bizarre, unique situation to be able to have a <laughs> character that was you know a child, and you finding that voice and then kind of making them mature over time and and turning them into kind of this wandering samurai and rebels. And, you know, it's, Mm. it's an evolution and it's, it's something that we really had to ask the audience to be patient with in the beginning. Uh, 
And I had to develop a philosophy for her that was going to be unique from what Obi-Wan's was with Anakin's was, what Qui-Gon's was, and yet it's, her character's influenced by that. So if, if I'm proud of anything, and, and it includes the whole team of people, I mean, there's been countless people that have, you know, brought this character to life since the very beginning when George and I sat around the table and mm. I first started sketching her. Um, you know, my animation lead in Taipei, Jesse Yee, has been with me the entire 15 years and uh, watched this character grow as he's watched his kids grow. You know, it's it's kind of a remarkable, unique situation on, on so many levels. But uh, I think the best thing about Soka is that she's really, she stands on her own and she has her own character arc, but she has also been able to stand next to these great characters that George created, and she's found a spot. You know, she fits in that lineup where when we introduced her in 2008, I think people were really questioning that. And characters like that can seem like just some kind of marketing opportunity. But it was never that. Yeah. She always, you know, had a purpose and a goal and a point of view and a perspective. And, you know, from Ashley voicing her to the animation team, to the design team, to everybody that, you know, goes in. And animated characters are like a unique creature in that they, they yeah. take this massive effort to spark life into. But, but then to me, they exist as surely as, you know, the other characters in Star Wars exist. So when you picture Luke Skywalker or Ahsoka Tano or even Hondo Anaka, you know, and you pull those out of the air and then when you put them in play and they become a, a living, breathing character. So it's a pretty special thing uh, to be a part of. Yeah. And I'm just glad the fans are, <laughs> we're so receptive uh, to it. Not in the beginning. They're a little bit, you know, they yeah. wondered about this uh, kid running around with an attitude calling Anakin Sky Guy and, you know, but it, it took some time, <laughs> but uh, we made it work. <laughs> We're talking about Ahsoka, and the, yeah, you've seen the rumors recently that she may be making the, the cross into the live-action realm with the second <laughs> yeah. season of The Mandalorian. I've got you here. What can you say about that? Can you confirm, deny? What, what's, oh, what's no, the deal? of course not. Yeah. <laughs> I'd not confirm anything ever. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> I won't confirm the weather outside for you. <laughs> I mean, again, like, just going back to what I was saying about the characters, I think it's so great and so special that, that people are interested in, in that that a lot of people say they would want that, that they would debate it, that they wonder what it would be like. I think it just shows you how strongly the character has um, kind of cemented herself in Star Wars, that that's even a possibility. Absolutely. Um, it's a real credit yeah. to everybody uh, involved. And we'll just, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, I mean, I, I didn't think I'd ever make the end of Clone Wars. And if you'd asked me that, uh, you know, I wouldn't have given the answer that I, I can show you now with the show. So who knows? Who knows what the future holds? Always in motion. <laughs> yeah, I can quote the Star Wars, gets you out of it. Always in motion is the future. It does. <laughs> it really, yes. <laughs> yeah, get out of jail. It really court. does. Or the uh, jail get out of. Is that how <laughs> there you it go. Works really good. Right I, I've, I've no idea. But, um, <laughs> but um, just one last very, very mm -hmm. quick thing. I mean, you, you talk about the, the impact Ahsoka's had and introducing the, the new character to Star Wars brings to mind the the impact of the child for the Mandalorian. Mm -hmm. And you're the guy who directed his first appearance on mm -hmm. screen. But, you know, even so, you know, have you been surprised by the way people have taken that character to their hearts? Oh, yeah. I, I, it would, I'd be crazy to say it wasn't. I mean, it is surprising. I, mean, I, I thought we had made something good. I, I, we all liked it. 
but you're in the middle of it. You know, I, I think it's hard to give some perspective and but people have really just grabbed onto that character. I mean, every now and then I think you're part of something that just connects in all the right ways. And, you know, everybody making that show, just like Clone Wars before it in Rebels and Resistance, people love working on Star Wars. They give it their all. And, you know, it just really came together in this little frog <laughs> looking guy. And, you know, it, it, mm. the the character of the child it proved itself on set every day. We were amazed at what, you know, the the legacy team could do with the puppets and getting it. I even don't even like calling it a puppet because it's so alive. You know, the child is so alive yeah. and that that made it so interesting as we learned, you know, how to light it and how the what was successful when it moved and you know, how much would we need to augment it? Will we not? And and it's just such a, a living character. Um, really, Werner Herzog was the first one that, that was like saying, this is going to be a big deal. Like he saw it and the rest of us like, okay, we're, okay, I guess, we're, I mean, we're working very hard here, so hopefully, but, but he saw something <laughs> different than the rest of us, which I guess makes sense, you know, and, and I credit John. John's really, you know, just brilliant with how he sees things and, and what he likes and, you know, just knowing John all the way back to Clone Wars when he did a voice for me as, as a Mandalorian character, mm-hmm. funny enough, pre Vizsla, you know, I just always felt yeah. strongly that John had great instincts for Star Wars. When we would talk or when I saw Iron Man, I'm like, oh, you, you have it. It's fun. And it's an adventure. It's action. Um, and so going into it with him, I, I knew we were on a very similar page. Uh, and, uh, you know, he just had this idea for this child and, you know, I was like, well, I've never, you know, that's something I never thought I'd see, which maybe that's a good thing. And I just, if it's going to happen, I want to be a part of it. That's for sure. Cause I know how important the character, uh, you know, Yoda is to George and I wanted to make sure I could be there to, uh, you know, kind of help guide John a bit, uh, as it was developing and, mm. uh, yeah, but I mean, the instinct of it and just his little face. <laughs> what are you going to do it? So it's a magic thing. And I think that when you can give that feeling back to an audience that you know you had when you were sitting in a theater watching Star Wars, that's kind of what it's all about. That's a really special thing. And uh, it feels good. It, you know, it feels good to be part of something that people enjoy and, uh, you know, enjoy watching. Hopefully it makes their, their yeah. days a bit better. Uh, and Dave, I'm going to let you go. Uh, just going to ask, how are you spending May 4th? Are you watching a load of Star Wars, or are you are you are you over that? <laughs> you I like a load of Star Wars, Wars today. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I think it's pretty easy. You know, uh, right now, I think like all of us, we're just trying to figure this out day to day, and and mm-hmm. hoping the best for people. And if you know, celebrating May the fourth makes things a little lighter for people, then. You know, I'm all for it, but you know, as, as you know, I mean, as we are in this situation, it's uh, it's tough all around for so many people. And I think that the biggest thing Indeed. is to be supportive. If you can find a way to help somebody else, and you know, I'll probably call my brother, my family, and and talk to them. And my brother still gets a big kick out of the fact that I work on Star Wars. It's such a mind bender <laughs> for him, and you know, to stay connected to people, you know, as best you can, and. Uh, yeah. Hopefully watching stories and, 
you know, even if you're doing it <laughs> some through some technology, it's just, it's just connected and, and moving forward. Well, uh, listen, stay safe, stay well, uh, keep washing those hands, and uh, yeah, may the fourth be with you. Oh, thanks, man. You as well. Thanks so much. <laughs> Real fun. Bye bye. Cheers. All right, so that was Dave Filoni, and The Clone Wars is available now on Disney+. Plus. Uh, let's talk now about movie news, and again, there has been a fair old ton of it, uh, which is good. And uh, the big news in Hollywood right now is that uh, Universal and... Well, actually not necessarily Universal, but AMC, the big cinema chain in the States. And over here, they are, they're also the owners of Odeon and uh, Cineworld as well. They're not the owners of Cineworld, but Cineworld have also said that they are not going to show Universal films in their cinemas when cinemas return going forward because Universal have now decided to pursue a policy of releasing films uh, on video on demand. So Trolls World Tour was their first uh, real tone award. Who'd have thought Trolls World Tour would bring down theatrical exhibition? <laughs> this is the Sean Mark Bosman of, of film <laughs> in so many ways. Uh, so it's it's really interesting. So a few weeks ago, they released Trolls World Tour, uh, direct to download, uh, bypassing cinemas because all the cinemas are shut around the world. And it seems to have done very, very well. The official figure that they've released is that it grossed $100 million in its first three days, which is comparable to what the first movie took in its first three days in US cinemas. So now they're going to release the next Judd Apatow movie, which stars Pete Davidson, my favorite ever cast member of SNL. Uh, it's called <laughs> The King of Staten Island, and it's going to be released straight to VOD in June. And then beyond that, who knows? Mm. They have Bond. They have Fast and Furious 9. They have all sorts of other big films as well. And they may be the first studio to properly test the waters of what will happen if you release one of these massive mega blockbusters in home cinemas only, so to speak. Uh, so AMC have decided to say, no, we're not going to do this and we don't want, we're not going to show any of your films. Go away. We don't like you. Have I summed it up? I mean, what's, pretty what's much. I, I, pretty much. Yeah, but I believe, uh, I haven't gone back to look since this morning, but I'm sure I read this morning that Universal kind of walked that back a little bit and some spokesperson from there said that the comments were misconstrued. I don't think it's going to be as extreme or as clear cut as it sounded originally. Mm. I th and I think, look, this is just a glitch, right? Things are different at the moment. Uh, it doesn't make sense for them to just be doing that with everything in the future. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, look, studios have wanted to test the boundaries, if you like, of the of the distribution window for quite some time. We've had face-offs before, um, but there has been this question of, you know, with these big films, what is the window going to be? Because, of course, this, from the studio point of view, they put all their marketing budget front and centre for the cinema release, and they want to give the VOD option as quickly as possible after that, so you get the maximum value of that spend. So it's still fresh in everybody, everybody's mind. So it still sounds like something that just came out yesterday, so that people want to rush and see it, however they want to see it, whether that's at home or in cinemas. But the fact is that VOD is still probably going to make you less money if cinemas are open and a viable option, just on the basis that for, let's say, £15, £19, whatever it is, the whole family can watch it at home, whereas it might mm -hmm. be that much each if they go to the cinema. So from a studio point of view, obviously, that would seem like more money overall. So I don't know if this is ever going to be an across the, the board kind of a thing. I'm, I'm sure what would be ideal from the studio point of view 
is to keep the kind of prestige titles in cinemas only for a probably shorter window and have the freedom to go either way with the smaller titles. But obviously, from the cinema point of view, that could be disastrous for their business model. So it is, I get that it's a really touchy subject and a difficult one for both sides. But I think what's happening now is really no guide to the future because we're in such a weird yeah. situation. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? I, I'm, when this first happened, when AMC stood up and basically we will no longer show Universal movies. It just it felt a bit like cutting off the nose to spite the face. You know what I mean? Like so, like Jurassic, Fast and Furious, Bond, like huge films. Were they actually mm. going to say they won't show them? That seemed insane. But then finally, so with Cineworld signing on, now it does feel like battle lines are drawn, and it does. I mean, it seems at this point that Universal almost have no choice but to do what I think they're being asked to do because they weren't being asked by MC necessarily to roll this back. They were being asked to simply include them in the discussion because this had been declared unilaterally and they hadn't consulted the exhibitors or really given them any courtesy notice of it. And I think that's what they were most annoyed about. They would have liked to have been involved in the discussion so they could work something out that was mutually beneficial. So you've got to imagine mm. that given how high the stakes are now, there's going to be a conversation. They're going to sit down, they're going to discuss it, they'll work something out. And it may be exactly as you say, where the big tentpole films will go straight to exhibition and then maybe with a shorter window, which seems perfectly reasonable. Uh, and then your Trolls World Tours can probably go straight to video on demand and I think the world will survive. The thing about yeah. Trolls as well is that people right now are stuck at home with their kids, desperate to mm. entertain them. This may not be a good guide to what happens in a normal world. Um, to something like a Trolls World Tour, you know. So I'm sure that Universal know that and are bearing that in mind, but it does see, feel like something that's kind of getting lost in the conversation a little yeah. bit. I bet you, though, um, despite the situation, the lockdown, I can't imagine that Universal actually thought that they were going to make $100 million from Trolls going to digital, which I believe it's like 16 million dollars off what the original made i mean it is an astronomical figure and i'm sure it's made them all go hmm this is interesting um obviously it's a lot cheaper to release stuff straight to streaming and so the profit margin is enormous but like helen said i think it's an extreme example of circumstance and i think it's in a bit of a vacuum does that does a scale up for example so if if they decided to drop in august they decided to bring bond forward no time to die mm. and they went here we go. We're not sure when cinemas are going to come back. Or, you know, we was, we know that some cinemas are reopening, for example, in Texas this week because of some interesting decisions that are being made across the pond, shall we say, uh, but only with 25% capacity. So that's not going to be attractive to Hollywood, you know. So say, for example, cinemas opened here and they opened in, in the States en masse um, and you can only fill 25% of each, each auditorium you're not going to want to rush Bond back into circulation or rush Black Widow back into circulation or A Quiet Place Part 2 or any of that stuff. But say, for example, in August, emboldened by this, and say, for example, that The King of Staten Island does gangbusters uh, when it's released in June because people want to laugh. And despite you know all evidence of the contrary, Pete Davidson might supply that. What if then they go, here's Bond, Will it scale up? Will they, you know, for example, 100 million for, for Trolls World Tour in three days? So, but Bond, a Bond movie needs to make, you would say, minimum 600 to 700 million dollars just to break even, which is crazy, of course. But can you see that happening? Can you see it making enough money? Black Widow, ditto? No, I don't think so. And, and surely if people know that a film is going to be on streaming at some point soon after it's just opened, then you won't get 
so many people going to the cinema to see it and they won't make as much money. I don't think it's a good business model. But then think about this. So how much does an exhibitor take off the ticket price? Like, what's the, What are the percentages there? Like, Surely their margins are much larger on video. I mean, Helen's absolutely right. So you're only doing one sale per family, so that's got to factor in. But I don't know what the margins are on, a, on an exhibition. It, it varies through the run of a film. Um, so it actually is front, it's front-loaded for the studio. So the studio gets more in the opening weekend mm. and then it kind of reduces by a percentage as time goes on. But overall, it's roughly, the, the rule of thumb is 50-50. Okay. The rule of thumb is 50% of the ticket price to the exhibitor, generally overall. But it's not quite that simple. Um, and, and it's one of the ways that the blockbuster model has helped studios because obviously that money is very front-loaded. So more, slightly more yeah. of it maybe goes to the, um, to the big studios. So yeah, call it 50-50. I think freeze. So, yeah, it depends. Like you can imagine. So let's say Bond is released. So Saturday night. So this week, tomorrow, Saturday night, <laughs> the new Bond film is released on streaming. Like you mm. gotta think that that almost becomes essential viewing for everyone, does it not? Yeah. I mean, everyone's gonna watch so it. So I wonder whether it. they couldn't make a fuck ton of money doing that. I don't think it would be a great experience. I don't. That's not how I want to watch the Bond film at all. But I tell you, it, I would. <laughs> like If it comes out tomorrow, I'm going to watch it. So um, It's an interesting point because it wouldn't make as much money in terms of ticket sales, but you'd probably have a lot more people watching it than would actually go to cinema yeah. to see it because mm. you don't have to make any effort. And it's actually cheaper. When The Invisible Man was released early for, I think in the UK, 15 or 16 pounds yeah. to rent it, I saw some people moaning about that. And it's like, well, hang on. First of all, there's probably more than one of you in the flat and your house is going to watch it. So that's already split. But also if you factor in maybe travel costs to cinema and popcorn yeah. and whatever else you spend your money on, it's really cheap. I don't know. I mean, look, there's so many levels but, at play here. Mm, I think there are. But I mean, let's say, OK, again, take the Bond example. They release Bond tomorrow. I mean, we are all super bored and maybe we do all watch that. <laughs> right but now. if the following week they they and we're let's say we're still in lockdown through all this, right? The following week they release Black Widow, the following week they reduce, they release Wonder Woman. Does the kind of fatigue set in at some no, point? No, I'm know, never Troll going out was, again. <laughs> okay, we aren't, but we're movie nerds, you know. Trolls benefited hugely from the fact that there was a novelty value to that, that this was a big, exciting new film, that their kids probably already liked the franchise, mm. that they could feed them to their eyeballs and feed get the them trolls. out of their hair for an hour and a half. Do, does that work going forward for everything? I don't know that it does. Not to mention the fact, of course, that filmmakers may want not want these films yeah. to be seen yeah. on the small screen at all. That's definitely true. Look, I'm not advocating this as a model going forward because I think anything <laughs> that, that kills cinematic experience is an absolute disaster. So I said, but I kind of, with my, you know, cynical studio suit hat on, I can kind of see how they're sitting in boardrooms going, hmm. Um, and I suppose it's just trying to work out what will happen. But I think you're right. We'll, we'll end up in a kind of middle ground where I think they'll experiment with it. They'll see what they can do. But I don't think anyone's ever going to say that post lockdown, they're going to debut a Bond film in your living room. I just don't, I don't see that being desirable from anyone's point of view. I think you always want the option to see that on the big screen because it's, it's a completely yeah. different experience and it's vastly yeah. superior. We're, we're all jumping at the bit, aren't we, to get to the, to get to a cinema, yes. to get to a packed cinema yes. and experience something that, that demands to be seen yeah. on the big screen. Yeah. Um, you know, in the same way I'm jumping to get back to football as well you know it'd be nice to get out there and 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 do things i know there are more important things obviously mm. at stake 
Uh, we're very aware of that. Uh, let's move on to talk about uh, some other stories, some other things that happened in the week. Anyone got well, anything? Rawson Marshall Thurber of uh, Skyscraper and Dodgeball fame uh, is making Spy yes. vs. Spy now. Do you remember Spy vs. Spy from Mad Magazine? Yeah. I got really excited because I thought this was a spy sequel. <laughs> I mean, that no. would be amazing. Um, but no, this is uh, this is Spy vs. Spy, the little triangle face as the white spy and the black spy, uh, denoted by their attire, who repeatedly kill each other in the in the Mad Magazine comic strips, which have been going for decades. And there was a video game as well, right? There has been video game adaptations of it. It's about four of them, actually. And uh, th- But this has been a film that's been... Rat- so, so they've been doing Spy vs. Spy since the 1960s. But... Um, the uh, th- this has been rattling around for ages. Like Ron, uh, Ron Howard was going to make it at one point. James Gunn was going to make it in the late nineties. So it, it has been sort of changing hands repeatedly and has never actually happened. But apparently, uh, Thurber's going to give it a go. I don't see how this works. Like I, I mean, I can see it as a kind of slightly low budget animated thing that would be fun. But as a live action thing, I don't. I just, I just don't see this working. And I like Spy vs Spy. I have affection for it, but I really <laughs> don't. Um, I don't know. The Rosser Marshall Thurber who made Dodgeball hasn't appeared since. No. Has no. he really? No. Let's be he honest. He was shilling for duct um, tape all the way through Skyscraper, so. <laughs> uh, that was a pretty bad film, Skyscraper. As he directed that film Red Notice, mm. which may show up on Netflix at some point, with, again, Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds and Gal Gadot. Um, so... I don't know. It could be it could be interesting. Maybe this will return him to his more comedic roots. He directed Central Intelligence. That wasn't too bad. No, that was fine. Yeah. James Gunn, is, as James said, took to Twitter last night to talk about the insane draft that he wrote. It was one of the first studio gigs he ever got back in the late 90s when Jay Roach was going to direct it. And uh, he said there's, there was a bit in the script that um, for some reason... He can't remember exactly what happened, but the, the spies ended up with their brains transferred into cats. And there was a a large portion of the movie where they went around either in the body of cats or or they thought they were cats and they were they were cats for a long part of the movie. And uh, he says he don't know how he got the how they got through. And then there was a, por- a portion whenever Jay Roach was off the project, and then it came back around to him to maybe direct. And he said to Jay Roach can I keep the bit with the cats? And he was like, yeah, sure, absolutely. So I'm in. <laughs> but it never got made. Just never got why. made. So, <laughs> but I kind of want to see that, if I'm honest with you. Anything else? Yeah, Wes Ball, who made the Maze Runner uh, films, if you remember those, and probably you don't, um, has signed up to make the first 15 lives of Harry August, um, which is a book by Claire North. It's quite an interesting one. So this guy is born, lives a normal life, and dies and then learns that he is an Aruburan, as in coming from Aruburos, the snake that eats its tail. And he's basically going to keep being born and living his life over and having the chance each time to learn new things because he still remembers what he learned last time. So he studies biology, chemistry, physics. He becomes a professor. He has this whole thing and eventually learns that, by the way, the world is going to end. And he, he as his lives go on, he maybe has a chance to maybe change things. So it's about the groundhog life. Kind of is, I guess. Yeah. But why not? Why stop it a day, you know? Let's yeah. keep it going. Absolutely. All of this has happened before. <laughs> <laughs> Everything comes back to Battlestar Galactica. It absolutely does. Yes. Speaking of TV, Helen, I'm, I'm shocked and appalled that you haven't launched straight into the Pratchett news. Which Discworld. I, of course, will be bringing well, up on the Pilot TV podcast this week. But you, you go mm, ahead. The, the problem is that there's so little to actually yeah. go on. 
Um, so Terry Pratchett's Discworld, obviously some of the greatest books ever written. No arguments, thank you. Um, uh, there, it's Who's been hard. No, I'm just saying. I'm just making it clear. I'm getting out in front of any possible arguments. Um, it's been hard to adapt for the screen. So Sky has tried a bunch of times and they have made some shows that were at best fine. Uh, there is currently a City Watch adaptation going on, which is, to call it loose would probably be an exaggeration, but if they capture the, the humour and the tone, fine. Um, but Narrativia, which is the company that manages the Pratchett estate, has now struck a deal to adapt other Discworld books for the small screen. Um, but we don't know anything more than that. We don't know which books. Uh, we know it's with a company, um, company's motive and endeavor content, which apparently share Narrativia's vision, according to Rihanna Pratchett, who is, of course, a fantastic games writer and, is, and Terry's daughter. Um, but we don't know much more than that. I'm personally holding out for Weird Sisters and or Witches Abroad, Your which witches I think obsession be amazing. Me. Oh my God, they're, they're so they're good. They're the only ones I don't like. You're a fool. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Uh, I'm, all, all, I'm all about death, which is probably quite on well, brand death for me. Would, yeah, Mort um, would also be acceptable. <laughs> and the guards, death and the guards. Yeah, but the guards are presumably tied up in the Watch yes. series. Yes. So those rights are probably... They are, yes, absolutely one. right. So yeah, there's a little bit of, a little bit of wrangling there. But this is exciting. I need to get back into the, the project. It is. This is exciting. But the thing is, the Discworld books yeah. have not been done well to date. So I'm I'm hopeful that I think they need money really more than anything else. I think the problem with the Sky adaptations there just wasn't enough money to make them good. There, there wasn't, but there also wasn't enough lightness. I think mm. you need someone who can walk that fine line between being faithful and being completely out there and outrageous Unfaithful. and weird. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, and you know. I, I don't know what that what that, that is a husband with a porn addiction. I don't know what that looks like. But you want someone who can walk the line Hello. between <laughs> <laughs> between bringing us the yeah. books that we love and bringing something new to them to make them. Work I think on what the people have maybe missed of this is that what makes the Discworld books good is not the stories and it's not the characters and it's not the dialogue. There's not any of the bits that actually end up on screen. It's the innate terriness of them. It's mm -hmm. the voice of narration it's his voice thread through it it's not the story it's just the hymnness of it that makes them so delightful and i just don't know how you get that on screen i really just don't know how you do it it's oh, quite yeah. a challenge quite a challenge i think it but if someone could do it i think you know it could be amazing yeah. somebody's got to be able to do it I nominate the gang Dune. behind Yonderland and horrible histories <laughs> and of ghosts to, to give it a go uh, because right. I think they, they have the lightness of touch. Hmm. Uh, Alex, you, you're a fan of the Discworld novels? of Terry Not read any of them. No idea. Oh, Alex. Good man. Oh, Alex. Speaking of <laughs> TV and indeed the Pilot TV podcast, Chris, there was some Pilot oh, TV podcast Lord. news this week, wasn't there? We had a special guest on the Pilot TV podcast on the latest episode. Is it, is it Pat, is it's it not Patrick Stewart. Stewart. Oh, it's, it's me, you. isn't it? It's me. It's you. Yeah, forgot You crossed that. the stream. Traitor. This week, You jumped the tracks. You crashed the podcast. Yeah. Listen, I couldn't let your little fanzine of a show carry on with, uh, and you just don't talk about Better Call Saul, and it's a travesty and a, and a, just a, ho a horrible oversight. So uh, Boyd has finally he has drunk the Kool Aid and he is on board the Better Call Saul train alongside myself, and uh, so I I, ch I humped I humped I jumped on your show this week to talk about Jimmy McGill and his wild and wacky world and. Uh, yeah, and some people have even tweeted this since, saying that they've they they agree and that they've they've seen the show since and they love it. So job yeah. done. So if you want to hear Chris humping the Pilot TV podcast, uh, it was it, well, it's live now. Download it. Listen.
it is. It is, as they say, regrettably available now. <laughs> Sorry, widely, <laughs> widely available now is the words I was looking for. Um, uh, Alex, do you have any, any bits of movie news that are you know, clean was, to your, your face? There was, um, yeah, I mean, it's not monumental, but there was the news that Chad Stahelski mm. and David Leach, yeah. who mm. were the stunt performers on the original Matrix films and I think probably involved with some of the stunt choreography and then since have been involving themselves in stunt choreography for half of the films produced by Hollywood in the last 20 years. I think Chad Stahelski was actually Keanu Reeves' stunt double on those films and they are now going to be working on the new Matrix film whenever that happens in some capacity. I think they released, I think the quote from Chad Stahelski was they're not going to be choreographing choreographing the action because Lana Wachowski is going to do that herself but um, I think they are going to be involved in I think they said the creative concept behind some of the choreography so I mean look that's not massive news but it makes sense and you you do get a good vibe that there is uh, getting the band back together going on in front and behind the cameras of that new film which is you know it's a tasty morsel I'm glad to see them doing it. I'm glad to see them back. They're both very, very good at what they do. um, And they can only bring good things to that film. Uh, But we should finish off with some very, very sad news this week. The tragic death at just 53. The great Irfan Khan, a wonderful Indian actor uh, who people will know recently... Uh, from films like Jurassic World and The Amazing Spider-Man and uh, The Darjeeling Limited where Wes Anderson actually wrote a role specifically for him. He was the star of Asif Kapadia's first film, The Warrior um, as well and uh, and popped up in so many great movies over the years mm-hmm. and uh, a movie I saw recommended a lot, I haven't seen it if I'm honest, is The Lunchbox uh, which people are, are really, really, really recommending in the wake of his passing this week and he was just a, a wonderful actor mm-hmm. and from all the uh, reports and tributes uh, that have been flooding Twitter about him, he seemed like a great, great guy as well. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I'd seen him before Slumdog Millionaire, but he, he had one of those faces that just stuck mm. in your mind. And you just then every time he appeared after that, you're like, oh, I like that guy, <laughs> you know, and it just he just I thought he was wonderful. He had a very trustworthy face. He just exuded yeah. sort of authority, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And there were some lovely t- uh, tributes to him from Asif Gapadia on Twitter and from Colin Trevorrow, who directed him in Jurassic World, of course. The Indian Prime Minister uh, described his death as a loss to the world of cinema and theatre. He passed away from a a rare form of cancer as well, but 53 years old is no age at all. And he is a real, real loss. The great Irfan Khan, who died this week. So as we mentioned earlier on, uh, obviously during this unprecedented global crisis, cinemas are... Most cinemas are not open at this time and certainly aren't full to capacity, even if they are open. And so lots of independent cinemas are struggling at this time. And so they are holding fundraisers, they are selling memberships, and they are coming up with all kinds of clever ways for you to help keep them afloat. Uh, And so we give shout outs to cinemas every week. Alex, do you have a favorite cinema you want to give a shout out before I start listing cinemas? Yeah, I well, it's one of my local-ish cinemas. You've you've probably mentioned it before is the uh, Phoenix in East Finchley. Have you gone into that one? No, I don't think we've ever mentioned the Phoenix. It used to be my local. All right, yeah. Well, it's a beautiful Art Deco cinema. I think it's been renovated once or twice. It's been around for decades and decades and decades. It's a really exceptional old school place. And you just feel a really warm, unique, very earthy atmosphere in there. But it's very, very pretty. And I've been to see films in there and just had incredible cinematic experience. I saw The Elephant Man in there 
three or four years ago, they found an old print from 1980. Look, that, the Elephant Man came out as a 4K remaster recently on Blu-ray, uh, supervised by David Lynch, and it was beautiful and it was pristine and it was shiny, but it had nothing on what I saw at the Phoenix, which was a buggered up, crackly old dog-eared print from 1980. And it was great because it was like watching a film from the birth of cinema, which is when The Elephant Man is set. And Mark Como came in and did a really, really interesting introduction to it. I think Reese Shearsmith was there watching the film and it just felt like a time capsule. And there's nothing that stinks of, you know, some of the corporate flavor you get in some cinemas. It's a great little place. Um, It's needed help a couple of times in the past before, and I'm sure it might do now. I'm not sure, but um, that's the sort of thing that we really, really need to keep going. Okay, so the Phoenix Cinema is a fantastic cinema. If you can figure out on the interwebs how to support it, uh, then please do so. Uh, let's take some shout-outs from listeners around the world now. So at Mr. Jeremy Dillon, uh, a friend of the pod, Jeremy Dillon asks to, asks us to put a word in for his beloved Belcourt Theatre in Nashville, which is a non-profit art house, pretty much the only place to see indie releases in town. And they've come up with special arrangements for streaming films they would have been showing and with ticket sales for streams, putting some money in their coffers. And gift cards are also available uh, and you can go to bellcourt.org forward slash FAQs or just bellcourt B-E-L court dot org for more details of how you can support them uh, staying in the States the Alameda Theatre and Cineplex in Alameda California where they have the nuclear vessels <laughs> has been shouted out by at I am Aaron Gould. It's been around since 1932, apparently. And their opening that night events include talent shows featuring locals, trivia, magic acts, sing-alongs, etc., etc., etc. So look them up uh, if you're local or if you are just particularly benevolent at this time. Uh, at James underscore Smedley has asked us to give a shout out to his local cinema slash theatre, which is... The Dukes in Lancaster. And you can uh, find out more about how you can become a friend of the Dukes and support that cinema in Lancaster by going to dukeslancaster.org. And according to James Smedley, this is where Andy Circus got his start. So there's every chance that Andy Circus is playing every single member of the cinema staff. <laughs> Uh, at St. Kyle B1 asks us to give a shout out to the Glasgow Film Theatre, which of course is where we did our one of our live shows last year, was where we interviewed Michael Palin uh, at the GFT1. That was a lot of fun. Uh, if you go to glasgowfilm.org, support-us, then you'll find ways to donate to them because it is we've been there. It is a lovely old school yeah. cinema and they have a donations page set up as well a couple more shout outs to go uh, from Brendan O'Neill at stickleback underscore pro on Twitter who asks us to give a shout out to the Mockingbird Cinema which is in Digbeth where the hell is that is that in Birmingham James is, is, I was about to say I think it's in Birmingham yes Yes. It is. It's Birmingham. It's situated within Birmingham's iconic Custard Factory. The Mockingbird Kitchen and Cinema, the other way around, actually, offers a unique cinematic experience. So there you go. And uh, Brendan O'Neill says in his... Have you been there? I think I have. And he says, they've let me host filmmaker Q&As and program Six Best Fest there as well, which is a Six of the Best Festival. I have been there. It was good. Was it good? Yeah, it was really good. I, they, I went to an open air screening of, I think, Jaws, and it was great. 
Oh, very good. Excellent. And then the last one this week, and again, if I've if I've overlooked you, if I've missed out your shout out, then I apologize. Um, I can't, I haven't seen them all. I, I haven't made a list. I should do. Uh, so do get in touch with me via DMs. DMs are the best way to do so for this section. Uh, and then hopefully I can include your cinema next week. So the last one comes from at Cat Stower on Twitter. And uh, she would like us to mention the Alhambra Cinema in Penrith in Cumbria. That's the Lake District, isn't it? Penrith. Penrith. Uh, it's an independent three-screen cinema, which is a lovely place to go. It shows a wide variety of films and usual stuff. And you can support them by buying vouchers online, which starts from £5. And the website is penrithcinema.co.uk. So there you go. And, uh, you know, use the hashtag celebrate our cinemas, not just for the DMs, because that doesn't really work, but, you know, just to see what other cinemas are using that hashtag on Twitter and what other cinemas can use your support. And as ever, you know, if you can support cinemas, then please do so at this time. I know that it's these these times are tough for a lot of people. And as I say, every single week as well, your support of Empire is very, very much appreciated, whether that is buying the magazine. New issue is on sale right now. It's on sale in, in all good and evil and virtual news agents as well. Uh, you can get subscriptions to Empire magazine as well. Jimbo, the current offer is still three issues for five pounds. Nearly, it is nearly expired, but I believe you can still do the three issues for five pounds. Excellent, which offer. you can do by going to empireonline.com and uh, there's a magazines section there and also there's greatmagazines.co.uk if you want to uh, buy a subscription to the magazine and it guarantees delivery of the new issue of Empire to your doorstep every single month. And then of course there's our spoiler special podcast paywall subscription channel thing as well um and the content for that is coming thick and fast thick mm. and fast mandalorian spoiler specials picard spoiler special with sir patrick stewart uh extraction spoiler special with the director sam hargrave next week sees the debut of our retro jack reacher spoiler special with christopher mcquarrie and yes that is going to be an epic one as well and there are more planned and lined up beyond that also which i won't give away here but there are some big names lined up it's very exciting and don't forget that we have a survey currently running. I think it runs only until Monday. Uh, mm-hmm. But if people could go to empireonline.com slash podcast survey before then, yes. we very much want to hear what you think very of the Spoiler much. Special Podcasts and that service. And you will be in with a chance of winning a million pounds, pounds no, in Amazon vouchers. A million pounds no, and an infinity James. gauntlet. No, yes, James. Yes. No, Chris. Actual, your own island. Actual, no, yes. as your lawyer. Yes, you on. get to win. A £200 Amazon voucher. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> but anyway, if you are interested in getting uh, subscribing to the spoiler specials, uh, you could do so by going to glow.fm forward slash empire film. Or if you just go to my Twitter, uh, at Chris Hewitt, once again, the details are in my pinned tweet. All right. The Celebrate Our Cinemas slash shameless plug section is now over and it is time for our second guest this week who is the wonderful kitty green who is a documentarian turned writer director of this week's excellent oops spoiler uh film the assistant which explores the day in a life of a an assistant in hollywood played by julia garner uh who is the assistant one of the many assistants to a tyrannical weinstein-esque producer it's a Fascinating film, brilliantly acted, brilliantly written, and well worth your time. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, Kitty Green was kind enough uh, to jump on Squadcast with me uh, from her base in Australia, and we had a chat about the film. Enjoy. 
delighted to be joined remotely on the Empire Podcast by Kitty Green, the writer and director of The Assistant. How are you, Kitty? I'm good, thank you. I mean, yeah, it's a little strange, but yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. It's 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 almost my it's my default small talk question. How are you? How are you doing? You must be well. And every time I say it, and during one of these things, I the minute I say it, I think, hang on, I should be saying, how are you? Considering. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Given it's everything that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all getting by as best we can. Yeah, absolutely. How you how you coping with uh, lockdown life? Uh, where are you at the moment uh, in in the world? I'm in Australia. I just left. I left New York a few weeks ago, and I'm back home in Australia. So it's uh, pretty quiet down here, that's for sure. But um, okay, yeah, pretty easy. Okay, all right. Uh, are you fully locked down, or are you uh, are you uh, okay at the I, moment? I think so. If I I don't know exactly what the rules are, but I'm staying in. I promise. You're staying in. I'm <laughs> yeah. talking to people like me. Exactly. <laughs> For which I can only apologize. Um, uh, but one of the reasons we're talking, obviously, is that the the assistant was due to have a cinematic release. Um, if I remember rightly, I think it was actually meant to be out by now, uh, maybe this week or next week uh, in in cinemas in the UK. Uh, obviously, yeah. that is now it's now getting a digital. Uh, release uh, on the first of May. Um, I miss cinemas, quite frankly, but I'm I'm mm-hmm. really really glad that people are getting a chance to see your film. Uh, how how do you feel about this whole situation about digital releases and about the, the the lockdown of cinemas at the moment? I mean, it's a very it's a very quiet movie. So the worry is that <laughs> in your home you'll just pick up your phone and start checking Instagram or something. But I do I don't know. I feel like hopefully it'll find an audience. Uh, digitally as just as it would in the cinema so yeah i mean but i think you're also right because it's um if you fear that people might go on instagram during this movie i think the opposite <laughs> will happen actually i think it's 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 such a an intimate uh film that i think it will draw people in especially oh, yeah, if they're watching so. it yeah because people will watch uh, watch movies they, they tend to watch these things on on ipads hopefully not iphones that would be i would draw the line at iphones but uh i think it's such it's such a it's such a quiet film that it does invite you in uh, rather than push you away to Instagram or to Twitter or wherever else you may want to, you may usually find yourself. I hope I so. I, I mean, Julia Garner, let's, she's so impressive and she's so beautiful and wonderful and striking that I hope she is hopefully help will help that get people in <laughs> and following. So. This is obviously a, a, a film. It's one of the first specifically post Me Too films as well. And it, it focuses on Julia's character, who is an assistant to a film producer who's never named, never, we, we hear we hear little hints of, of what he's like. We hear his voice occasionally, but otherwise the film focuses pretty much entirely on Julia. I think she's in virtually every scene. So when you were writing this, you you knew that you had to find someone who would be compelling, who could hold the screen. Uh, yeah. So as you were writing it, did you think, I don't know who this person is? Well, yeah, in a way. I mean, I didn't write it with anyone in mind. She's kind of everybody. I mean, her name's Jane. Um, and essentially she doesn't even, her name's not even said during the film. I did want her to be kind of reflective of all of us in some way and any woman that's been in an entry level position. But um, so I didn't have anyone in mind. I got the casting agent, A.B. Kaufman, who's wonderful. And I said to her, I need someone infinitely watchable because it's basically a woman doing the most mundane tasks, making coffee, photocopying for 90 minutes, essentially. So I, um, she brought up Julia and I had seen her in Ozark and the Americans, obviously, and thought she was 
immediately like interesting and striking when I saw her on those shows. So I was excited about that. And we met and got along and yeah, it's wonderful. She's incredible. Very lucky. Absolutely. And uh, was it, was, did you click instantly, the two of you? We did. It, yeah. I don't know. I kind of, it's my first time working that closely with an actor, especially one actor um, and having that kind of collaborative relationship. And I, I mean, it was wonderful. The whole thing was really incredible. And, and I didn't realize afterwards, I thought, does that happen all the time? Or was I just really lucky that we kind of clicked so well? So I think I was just lucked out. I'm worried that the next one will be terrible, but because that was such a wonderful <laughs> experience. Um, so, yeah, it was. Yeah, she's brilliant. I'm such I'm such a fan. What was what was your first day on the on the uh, on the movie together? Oh, was it a nice, easy, a nice, relatively easy scene or because uh, some people like to get the big dramatic stuff out of the way early. It's hard to describe because it's, I mean, there's a lot of sort of mundane routine to the to the film. So I think there's there was a lot of that to begin with. But we did a month of rehearsals, actually, which was great. Um, we did a lot of, we interviewed some assistants together. We did, I wanted to make sure she knew how to do the work. She's an actor and has uh, basically never worked an office job before. So I had to make sure she could use a, <laughs> a hole punch, essentially, and um, do things like that. So we had a lovely kind of process where we could kind of eased into whatever the first shooting day was we were ready and prepared um mm. so yeah it was great okay interesting and and i was jane where you started was 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 it this character this idea specifically from the off uh, I, I believe that you were noodling around with an idea around this world even before um, correct me if i'm wrong on this even before the weinstein news broke but were, um, did, were yeah. you thinking about doing something with an assistant I wasn't, I began working on something about, I wanted to make something about misconduct and about uh, what I saw as some more sort of gendered environments and the way I, I'd had some weird experiences on the film f festival circuit. And I was interested in exploring kind of why those things occur. And so power structures and gender was what I was looking at. And I started on mm. college campuses because at the time in the U S because at the time that was where those conversations were being had. If you wanted to talk about consent and power, like, you would go to a college campus that was sort of people were the sex, the, the sexual assault crisis was a big thing in the press at the time. Um, so I did like a tour of colleges chatting to students when the Weinstein story broke and my phone kind of blew up because a bunch of my friends, if work for, there's a few that work for him, but a bunch work for kind of similar uh, predatory men, I guess I'd say. So a lot mm. of people were discussing how this happened, what was going on, what kind of environments um, uh, allowed this or supported this kind of behavior. Um, so we were having a lot of discussions and I started that research process then interviewing women who worked in, um, as assistants, essentially, um, as a way in to examine kind of the power structures in those environments. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, approach as well. I mean, as you say, Jane isn't named during the movie and the movie is a series of it's, it's death by a thousand cuts, essentially, in that, mm -hmm. you know, every, almost everything she does, she's undermined by male colleagues. She's undermined by the system in which she finds herself uh, and she is dehumanized even by her her interactions with this producer, the way that he treats her, whether it's over a, a phone call we barely hear or uh, through you know, almost this, this series of, of whispers and rumors. Um, clearly, that was important to you as well to, to try and capture that, to try and capture that sort of dehumanizing aspect. Yeah, well, I was looking at the press coverage of 
of the Me Too movement, and they were obsessed with the men, the bad men, and the and the kind of sensation, more sensationalist aspects of it. And I was saying it's bigger than that. Like it's bigger than just Harvey Weinstein or some of these names. It's something systemic and cultural, and we need to unpick all of it in, in order to kind of get move on and get rid of it and, and for things to change. And so that is looking at gendered work environments, sexual harassment, microaggressions. I was really interested in like just mm. kind of glances, looks, gestures, like throwaway lines, things that people don't understand are undermining somebody's confidence or self-worth or so all of that became kind of, well, the assistant became a way to explore everything kind of on the spectrum from sexual misconduct and assault through to like, toxic work environments essentially and the way that kind of all of that i mean those kind of environments are provide an entry point for that kind of behavior it's i don't want to conflate the two issues like the of course. different issues because that's it gets really tricky really but um i do yeah i did want to make sure we highlighted the stru- larger structural kind of issues and concerns in order to mm. Yeah, make sure we do change things moving forward, essentially. Absolutely. I mean, and a lot of this is plucked from experiences, uh, I I guess, either you've had or friends that you've had as well. I mean, there's some of the... uh some of the intrusions, some of the microaggressions, as as you say, uh, are, are are kind of jaw dropping. There there are moments, and we won't discuss too much, but uh, there are moments, for example, where she's writing an email of apology, and two work colleagues, two male work colleagues, will come across and just openly stare at her screen and make suggestions and invade her personal space in a way I found really horrible. You know, where, where do those little microaggressions come from? Is that stuff you've experienced? Is that stuff that other people have experienced? I mean, a lot of it was, was sto- I mean, I was hearing stories again and again from young women, definitely about men invading their personal space and men trying to help in inverted commas and being kind of patronizing or stepping over the line in that act, very action and it kind of undermining them and their position. And all of that was, yeah, I spoke to nearly a hundred women and these stories were coming up again and again and again. And it was kind of horrifying to be honest, how many people had similar kind of complaints um, about their work environments. Uh, but yeah, so it did kind of come from a lot of different sources. And uh, as you as you mentioned there, you say that uh, you were working in this as a result of your experiences going to film festivals and and perhaps uh, other people underestimating your place in the creation of your own movies. Which mm. uh, can you can you talk about that about how people maybe uh, would almost shout you down in terms of your 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 role in your own creations? Yeah, I had this, I think that was sort of sparked the project was I had a film at Sundance a few years ago and I was a feature film, my second feature film. And I was so, it was a feature doc, but still, I was so excited mm. to be there. And it was my <laughs> first day. Yeah, <laughs> Some people don't think they are, but they are. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, but I was really excited to be there. And I remember the first question out of the first journalist's mouth was, so who gives you your ideas? Is it James Seamus or Scott McCauley? And James and Scott are my two male producers. And so the idea that I was like, wait, what do you mean? Who gives me my ideas? And they're like, well, who do you go to for your ideas? Is it James or is it Scott? And I was immediately like shocked and confused and just thought, oh, wow, this guy really doesn't think I made the movie. You know, like it's, it was absolutely kind of heartbreaking to be honest. And I got a bunch of bizarre questions that Sundance and I felt very shaken by the end of it and a bit like, do I belong in the industry? Is there a place for me here? Like I was very kind of confused by it. And I guess that kind of sparked me into sort of the research around these gender and what I was interested in. 
Hmm. And then from, from that point on, coalescing into this idea of a day in the life of Jane, was that a natural through line for you? Um, I did want to really explore. I mean, I was interested in the banality of evil, essentially. And, um, and this kind of, once I told a few friends about uh, what I was doing, there's a few different reasons. Sorry, I'm jumping all over the place. But I, I, I asked, a, I told a friend what the subject was, and he said to me, "Oh, assistants to work for a predator. Oh, the enablers." And I'd spoken to so many women who were re- in really complicated positions, um, being an assistant in that kind of role, working for someone whose politics or behavior they didn't agree with. And I felt like it's really a lot more c- complicated than that. And unpicking that was important to me. So showing what her day is like and how complicated the position she is in. So that's going task by task through her workday, through her routine, as she would, was important to me. So sticking the audience into the shoes of her, not letting them out, essentially. So... Um, so that they could really experience what it's like to be in her position was part like the goal. So one day became very, a good way to time it out so that everything kind of had equal weight. We weren't sensationalizing kind of the more kind of lurid aspects of it. Essentially we were kind of giving Mm. equal weight to the photocopier as we did to her picking up something Mm. suspicious. And cause that's what her day is like. It's sort of each task is something she, the next thing she has to get done essentially. But it, it is interesting. You, you talked there about the idea of the position that Jane finds herself in, and the position that everyone else finds themselves in at this that this company as well, this this you know this film company. Uh, in that, when the revelations, when the accusations uh, uh, against Weinstein in particular first broke, there was an awful lot of scuttlebutt, and people were talking about how did no one know. How did no one know in Hollywood and how did no one do anything about this? And oh, maybe you'd heard a bit of tittle-tattle here. Maybe you'd heard a rumor there or a bit of scuttlebutt there. And in this film is interesting as well because you get a sense that everybody in this company knows that something is going on, that this is not a good guy, that this is a, a dangerous individual. How much did you want to capture that, that sense of people torn between responsibility to themselves and responsibility to maintain their own careers and to turn the other cheek uh, and also to to say something, to speak out, to say this is wrong. I think it's really complicated because we don't know what people knew about the level of consent or whether people like there was a lot of like blurry, like, I don't know, it's got really it gets really complicated when you try and get down to who knew what and how and what, like it's really, but what all I, so what I did was position the audience in, in Jane's shoes essentially. So she doesn't know what other people know or who she can trust. And so you're learning as she is who, who she can trust, who she can reach out to, who'll shut her down, how she like, so that kind of became important in the structure of it. And yeah, the culture of silence, essentially like her trying to reach out every time she does try and speak up, she's often, people often kind of ignore it or sort of deflect it. Or there's like the HR executive who mm-hmm. like outwardly tells her that she's, well, makes her gaslights her essentially into thinking she's got nothing to really complain about. So, I mean, everyone, those, all those are kind of approaches of dealing with something that um, horrific essentially were, were part of this, exploring kind of the machinery essentially around a predator like that and yeah mm. that he's built around Absolutely. himself to keep that behavior 
kind of keep that support that behavior essentially he surrounded himself with 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 toxic males as well to to <laughs> to a large degree and uh, i wanted to talk about that incredible scene uh, with matthew mcfadden as well where you know it's a two-hander that that goes into interesting and unexpected directions uh and i imagine did, did it take a full day? I mean, because in, in a way, it's a centerpiece of the movie, and I, I wonder did you did you set aside more time to to, to, to nail that, uh, or was that something that um, just came up? Well, it, yeah, it's interesting. It's it's the most dialogue in the movie. I think it's like the majority of the script's very short and it's very long. <laughs> I think it's twelve pages of dialogue. But um, so they. We got Matthew, which was such a thrill because I'm such a fan of his and just think he's brilliant. And he agreed to do it and was so wonderful and came in um, and the two of them did it again and again. We ended up shooting in a day. I think we allotted two days because we wanted to make sure we got it. But they were yeah. so great. So immediately, kind of each time they did it, it got more rich and more dense and more beautiful. Like there was something about the way they kind of mined those performances for everything they could find essentially. And it was just... Um, Incredible. I come from documentary again. So just being on that set mm. was just wonderful for me. That's very, yeah. And it's ter ter he's terrifying in it. He's so insidious the way he delivers it with this calm, cool, collected, you know, it's really, oof. Yeah, it's creepy. Yeah. So the, the movie is not, it's not about Weinstein. It, it is not a Weinstein movie. Um, but we do hear the producer very, very briefly played by the great J.O. Sanders, I believe. Is that, is that mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. Uh, who's, who's just tremendous. But um, can you talk about why you never name him and why you, uh, well, and in fact, why was it ever, did you ever consider making it a Weinstein movie at, at any point? I think, I mean, it's, it's, uh, this is the, at the end of the day, it is reductive. If we had have made it a film about Harvey Weinstein, everyone would think, oh, that just happened at the Weinstein company. That doesn't happen where I work, you know, and that kind of gets everyone off the hook. And that was never what we wanted to do. We wanted to make sure people watch that film and could kind of see the behaviors in their workplace and call them out or try and like, at least try and make sure that people are aware of them or, so that was important to me. So the idea that it was a Weinstein film was, yeah, not, definitely not, not going to help with the kind of cause. <laughs> so yeah, yeah um, I think yeah. I, to me, it was really important that that it is universal and that. And I have had people from all over, not just the film industry, but any lots of different industries, who come up to me and say that they see themselves in the character and they've worked in in a place just like that. And there's nothing in it that's unique to the film industry. There's she's doing administrative mm. tasks. Essentially, she could be working anywhere. So yep. that has been really important. And I'm I'm really thrilled that people see themselves in her and work. I mean, not thrilled because it's a horrific situation that she's in, but people do identify with her, and and that that's that's yeah meaningful. Do you think that the do you think that the industry is changing? Do you think that the attitudes are changing within in the, within the industry? Um, I think it's getting better. Honestly, I've I've got a lot of friends who are filmmakers and women and. Uh, I feel like they are getting a bit more work than they used to. I think it's not changing enough, but I do think it's getting incrementally better. And the more kind of conversations we can have about not just the predators, but about the culture and about kind of gender in general um, and how that influences people's decisions when it comes to hiring and who gets climbs the ladder, et cetera, like all of that helps. So yeah, the, I'm happy to chat at any time. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And the uh, last thing is, um, was it a difficult film to get made? I've read interviews where you, where you, where you say that it, it was difficult. And I noticed there was an awful lot of production companies uh, whose logo was at the beginning of the, of the movie. So I imagine was it quite piecemeal? A little bit of money from here, a little bit of money from there? I mean, it was. I, 
this is, it was a really difficult film to finance because it is, I mean, you open the f- first few pages and you can kind of see yourself. I think a lot of these production companies could see themselves in it. And so they were worried about financing it. I think a lot of them <laughs> yeah. honestly don't have great HR departments and things like that. And I think anyone who took it on had to be able to make sure that they were at least trying to address some of the problems that are <laughs> in the field. So we did um, end up getting a kind of cobbled together from all these incredible um, companies who kind of came together. I mean, cobbled is the wrong word. They came in and they supported it and yeah. were wonderful. And we were at the best team and we were really lucky and fortunate to get to do it our way, which is not sensational and not kind of trying to really trying to explore it, the nuances of it in a way that's delicate and sensitive. And yeah. Hmm. Given that you're in lockdown, Kitty, um, do you have a, a, a particular cinema that you're missing right now? What is your favorite cinema? If you were to give a shout out to a cinema. Oh, a cinema, like an actual cinema complex. Mm. Yeah. What's, uh, what's, your, what's, I, your, what's your place? What's your place of, of joy? I'm a block right now from the Nova Cinema in Melbourne, Australia, which is the the best art house cinema in Australia, in my opinion. And I, I miss it because it's so close to where I am. So, yeah, um, that would be my shout out but yeah hopefully it all, all comes right. back soon we want to watch oh, movies <laughs> indeed <laughs> hope we're all back indeed indeed yeah. not six feet apart but together yeah. that'd, that'd be nice that'd be nice yeah. uh, uh, amazing uh, it's been an absolute pleasure kitty and i hope that happens very very soon but thank you so much for joining us okay so that was kitty green and now it is time to start the reviews section by talking about the assistant which is out this week on video on demand wherever you can demand video that's where you will find the assistant james Indeed. So as you will have already heard, this stars Julia Garner of Ozark fame uh, as Jane. She's a young sort of graduate who has started. She's been working just over a month at a film production company as a, as a general office assistant, but sort of clearly attached to an Uber producer in some capacity. Uh, and she ultimately wants to become a producer. She kind of bright eyed, bushy tails, wants to get a, her start in the industry. And we follow her. This, the film begins as she gets picked up by a car in the wee hours and taken to the production office. And what's really interesting about this is it follows her almost in real time as she does daily tasks like putting on the coffee you know tidying up emptying the bins uh, photocopying some 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 papers like there's no montage here it is actually a real time sort of array of mundanity and it's a, it's a really interesting approach to this because it shows the drudgery of her life this whole film takes place over the course of one day it's very condensed and it's very not slow in a negative way but it really takes its time because this film I think goes for subtlety more than anything else. I'd read actually before I saw it that there was some criticism. I think it was Variety actually. Uh, didn't like it because they thought it was too tame. Like it didn't really, you know, hit home. You didn't see egregious acts of abuse. Like it's all very implied. It's very run of the mill. It's very everyday and it's very normalized. I actually think that's what's really good about this because I think, you know, Weinstein is big and he's sensational and what he did is awful and it makes headlines and that's why it made headlines. But this sort of stuff happens every day in every industry and in every office and it is run of the mill and it is routine and it is swept under the carpet and I think that's what this shows really well that whether it's her male colleagues you know patronizing her ignoring her you know refusing to get out of her way when she's tidying a room there's all these sort of little indignities that she deals with and having to apologize for trying to do the right thing repeatedly um her boss, the producer, we never see him. We never even know his name. Uh, we kind of hear him mumbling on the phone. Um, so it is all implied and, and you never see anything overt. But I think it, it's a really powerful piece of filmmaking. It's really tight. It's 87 minutes long. And it's kind of big sequence, which is not a spoiler really, but when she finally tries to voice her concerns about what's mm. going on in the sort of Weinstein-esque office, uh, it's the, the shocking part is that 
obviously she's not taken seriously, but more than that is you gradually start to realise everyone is complicit in this. Absolutely everyone knows what's going on and nobody does anything about it or even really seems to think there's anything wrong with it. So it's not it's not an uplifting film. It's not chirpy, but it's a great, subtle, very understated performance from Ghana. And uh, there's very little dialogue in this as well. Like There's long sequences where she's just tapping away at a keyboard or moving things where you hear things mumbled in the background. Um, but it's a really interesting film. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, well, enjoyed is maybe not the word. I think I think it, I thought it was really good. I found it very depressing just because it just felt so real to me. Like it feels like this is just a thing that goes on and that's just shit. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's interesting that it would be criticised for not showing the sort of stuff that's not in it, because that's the point. And that's not the point of the film. That's kind of what Bombshell was in a way. And there are other films that can do that. You don't. There is nothing overtly dramatic or explosive in the traditional sense in this film. But um, it's it's not about that. It's about the culture. It's about how that is enabled. It's like how you say how it's brushed under the carpet. And it gives you, I think, a very nuanced understanding of how that works in practice mm. and what mm. sort of gentle but destructive effect that can have on someone's psyche and on culture as a whole because, you know, it's a cumulative effect. Um, and you watch it and you sort of you, you get the you get how that works. It gives it some nuance. It gives it some depth beneath there's more obvious atrocity of it all. This is not about one person doing something really. I mean, everything that the boss is, you know, maybe or does do is, is only very quietly discussed or alluded to, but it's more about how culture as a whole and certainly different workplaces turn a blind eye to that. And that is creepy and dis disastrous in itself I and mean, it's not it's funny what you say it's 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 not even the most compelling film but it's kind of hypnotic in its own way mm. and it gets under your skin it sort of just lets you in and i think the cumulative effect of that is really spooky and you do go away feeling like you get the picture you understand how these things work and how things need to change no, I agree with you. I think it's 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 an interesting film. It's definitely it's definitely a film that I would recommend people see. And I, and I think you're absolutely right. I think maybe those reviews who said that did kind of miss the point in it. Like, I get what they're saying. Is they're saying you know do they want a big splash? They want something that's going to drive this issue forward and further. You know that, but that's not what this film is about. And I think this what this film does is it brings across you know the realism of the situation and and the effect the toll that it has on on this woman who's not affected directly by the sexual harassment but is a subjected to sexual harassment every day on a really low level very sort of like drip 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 uh kind mm. of marginalizing way um but the effect it has on her just watching it be perpetrated elsewhere and the fact that no one no one does nothing about it yeah and she but, kind uh, of has to pick up the pieces yeah very much and so. pretend it's not happening and when mm. she does like you say i mean it's i don't know how much of a spoiler it is it's about midway through the film but it's a very disturbing film is, is it matthew mcfadden who plays the yes. hr guy the, the hr director yes yeah and he's very snaky um, it's a horrible scene and I'm sure those conversations go on all the time in that way or certainly yeah. have been doing for decades in case people think that we have suppressed Helen uh, <laughs> which would be <laughs> an Alanis level act of irony uh, during the review of this film um, uh, Helen hasn't you haven't seen it yet have you? I haven't seen it yet I'm dying to see it but, I, but it hasn't been possible this week so um, I'm hoping yeah. to get to it tonight so we gave this one four stars. Four stars then for The Assistant. Uh, next up is the return of the great Chilean filmmaker Pablo Lorraine. And this is Emma. Not to be confused with Emma, which came out a couple of months ago. Helen. 
Yes. So this is, uh, first of all, it's a really beautiful film. It, it starts with a traffic light on fire, um, which it turns out is gorgeous. But anyway, don't set traffic lights on fire. That would be bad. So this stars Mariana Di Girolamo, um, who plays Emma. And she is an interpretive dancer in a reggaeton troupe. Um, her husband is Gael Garcia Bernal's Gaston, and he is the troupe's choreographer. He's older than she is. And it becomes clear almost at once that things are very much not okay, uh, either between them or uh, generally. Um, they had an adoptive son after some, let's say, problems. They gave him back. They abandoned him. And now Emma in particular is absolutely haunted by the guilt of having done this and determined to get him back. Um, Gaston does not share her determination in this respect. They are both, how shall I put this, the worst um, they're absolutely <laughs> terrible people, but in, a, but in a way that's fascinating to watch and really, really interesting. Uh, so Emma sets out to basically get her son Polo back by any means necessary. It's not quite clear how she plans to do that. Uh, it does become clear, but it's one of these films where you're just kind of watching in fascination as these people you know, throw horrific abuse at each other, manipulate other people to a degree that you won't believe, seduce anyone that Emma in particular needs to seduce in order to make things happen, and really just live life by very much their own rules. I mean, she is a complete, and I say this with love, psychopath. So Di Girolamo is, I think, amazing. I think she's a real discovery. She's just completely magnetic. You always want to look at her. You always want to know what's going on. You don't necessarily know what she's thinking very often, but you don't kind of feel the lack. Uh, mm -hmm. And and you're just kind of fascinated to see how it goes. You just get pulled along by the story, um, even though you have no idea quite what's going on for large periods of the film, but in a good way. And it is absolutely, you know, gorgeously, gorgeously shot, as you'd expect. Um, Sergio Armstrong did the cinematography and I think he's done a magnificent job. So yeah, so it's it's not going to be a comforting film. It's not necessarily always an easy watch, but it is one that's just kind of magnetic is probably the word for it. You know, mm. they're not great people. They're not necessarily doing great things, but you kind of want to see what's next. So we gave this one four stars. I haven't seen this yet. Uh, I'm excited to see it. Um, everyone can see this. It is going to be, I mean, this podcast is going to go out in the afternoon of May 1st and the film is going to be on movie for the next 30 days. But today, May 1st, for the rest of today, it is available to everybody on movie, whether or not you have a subscription. Uh, and then after that, it is available to movie subscribers only. Uh, and as you know, we talked about movie quite a bit over the last few weeks, it's a really great service. One film in, one film out every day, 30 films at a time. That's the movie way. That's the discipline. And uh, so very, very quickly, I just want to give a shout out to some of the films that are leaving movie this week if you want to get your, your skates on. Uh, so Coffee and Cigarettes, Jim Jarmusch's Coffee and Cigarettes is leaving this week. Uh, Richard Kelly's Southland Tales, the film that I spent my 29th birthday on set of fact fans uh, Joseph Losey's The Servant The Great Servant uh, which is I think this month's classic scene in Empire uh, Ingmar Bergman's Sarah Band they're all leaving this week on movie so get on it and four stars for Emma we should also maybe uh, mention while we're talking about sort of live events happening online as it were uh, the National Theatre is broadcasting their Frankenstein so this is the Danny Boyle directed Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch and Naomi Harris starring Frankenstein I saw it when it was 
in the theatre and it was incredible. I think I saw Johnny Lee Miller play the creature on stage and then I went to you know, a broadcast and I saw Benedict Cumberbatch play the creature. But honestly, I don't remember because they were both amazing. They were different, but amazing because they rotated the roles every night. Mm. So both versions are now available to stream from the National Theatre and I highly recommend them both. Which idiot called the Frankenstein and not No Shit Sherlock's? I know. Anyway, the last film this week to discuss is Astronaut, which sees the return to the big screen of Richard Dreyfuss. Um, Listeners of the show will know we do have a Richard Dreyfuss interview and there are some technical issues with that. So I'm trying to make that work, perhaps as his own interview special, hopefully next week. Uh, Alex, you've Mm -hmm. seen this movie. Yes, I have. Um, so this that is directed, up, folks. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> that's all you need to know. I have seen it. Um, this is directed by Sheila McLeod. I think it's her first film, a Canadian director, I think. Um, and it stars Richard Dreyfuss as a seventy-five-year-old widower and retired civil engineer. He lives with his daughter's family. Uh, it's not completely harmonious, and he ends up in an old-age home and kind of. Well, when we see him put there, he gently kind of suffers the indignities of such a place, or at least that's how we see it presented through his filter. Now, all he wants to do uh, is be an astronaut. He has a telescope, and he's forever looking up at the stars. He finds it beautiful. He's fascinated by it. He's always wanted to go up into space. And then there's a lottery to get the chance to be a passenger on the first commercial space flight. And he gets, uh, well, I don't want to spoil it, but he gets somewhere. And so this is, it's a very quiet film. Um, it's very gentle. It's kind of mawkish and sentimental. Uh, it's, this is Richard Dreyfus doing, this is, it's, it feels like one of those sort of swan song performances. Um, or one of those, it's like him doing The Wrestler or Logan or something like that. You know, it's like going for that sort of tone. But Hank, actually, well, it's not, it doesn't feel like Logan in the slightest, but you know what I mean. Um, it almost feels like a kid's film, but it, it, I don't believe it's supposed to be one. It's so simple, it kind of feels like it's written by children sometimes. Um, maybe it's supposed to be for kids too, but um, it's kind of got, it kind of feels like those old-fashioned Disney-ish sort of live-action films from 60s and 70s that I think have arrived on Disney+. Plus. Um, there's a competition, as I mentioned, to win the chance to be a passenger on a space flight. And it's not unlike the old Willy Wonka film. There's other contestants. There's, you know, there's some tension. Um, it's, it's a gentle kind of family drama about an old guy trying to trying to live out his his last dream it's there's not much depth to it there's not much credibility to what's going on in the film but it is warm Dreyfus is very very human in it he's very warm it's very watchable he's sweet it is sweet it's all kind of nice but at the same time it's kind of lifeless and it doesn't really give you anything particularly interesting or challenging it sort of just wafts by you and it's all right yeah that's a, that's a shame. It, I, I agree with that. It's gentle. It's well acted. Limits of his budget show quite a lot. But I enjoyed seeing Richard Dreyfus back at number one in the call sheet again. Mm. But uh, otherwise, there's not a lot to recommend about it, sadly. Two stars then for Astronaut, which means Film of the Week, which is a, a feature that I bring back when I damn well feel like it, um, is going to be The Assistant and Emma. Well done to both of those films. Hooray! Hooray! Well done, everybody involved. Anywho, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, Join us next week for more remotely recorded film-related fun. 
We'll be joined by, if all things go well and according to plan, Tom McCarthy, director of Timmy Failure. Mistakes were made. Will he find out that coming on the Empire podcast was a mistake that he made? Who knows? Tune in next week to find out more. And until then, until the auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye from Alex Garland. Cosplayer, <sighs> Alex Godfrey. Yeah, thank you for watching Devs. <laughs> <laughs> you are the law. Uh, it is goodbye from James Dyer. Goodbye, all. And it's goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me. I am off to watch all the MCU post credit stings in one giant supercut. You know, life sometimes is a real drudgery. But we have to step up to the plate. Helen, are you prepared to step up to the same plate? I mean, I did already before recording this podcast. Uh, We'll have to do it again. Okay. Maybe throw an endgame as well. And we should talk about those portals at some point. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye.